0: Are you there, Clark?
1: I am. Can you hear me, Cindy? Yes, I can.
0: You're sounding good.
1: Great. And do we have Swatha as well?
0: Yes, I am here. Hello, Swatha. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to leave this
1: (laughs) in good hands with both of
0: you. We'll be back. See you later.
1: Thanks, And Gabe, how are we doing with our Spanish language interpreters?
2: We're doing great. Actually,
1: we just had a change of shift. <laughs> awesome. Well, big thank you. To and uh, you. the three of them are doing a stellar job. We've nice. been getting
3: great. Thank you. To we've
4: all been great partners. getting great um compliments. I've been getting calls. Uh, Decapta has been following. And uh, it's
1: it's it's it's. Just going great. I have no words.
3: Great. Thank you to Lucy, Danielle, and Joani for their work today. And to you as well. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) in this hour... Thank you. Gracias. Okay. Gracias. Um, In this hour, we have Self-Advocacy for Older Adults with Jeff Tom, who is a Board member and the past and um immediate past president of a of alliance on aging and vision loss and Anisio Correa who is not registered vision, service, vision, vision, vision services vision services for blind and impaired um he is from the alliance of aging aging vision loss so hi Jeff Anicio how are you both hello hello. Great. So I'll take it all, all up, to, up to you guys to take it forward.
5: Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to say before I turn over the helm to Anicio, who really is the guiding star behind all this, that um, just to show the power of our affiliates and ACB, Anicio um, has been an incredible force in this field for decades in in all over the East Coast, especially. But we wouldn't have, as vice president of AAVL and a current ACB member, if it hadn't been for the fact that um, AAVL became a participant in the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition and people like myself and Larry Johnson and others Uh, had a lot of communication with Inicio, and now here he is as vice president of AAVL and, you know, uh, guiding us today through an introduction to advocacy. So with that, I want to turn it over to my friend and a guy who, if I was any younger, I'd call him a mentor, but I guess I can't, but I shouldn't do that. Uh, Inicio, go ahead.
6: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for those nice words. And um, um, and Jeff really is the person that recruited me to the to the uh, Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, and I'm so glad that I, I found it. I said I said in uh, a different um, a different venue um, just a couple of days ago. I think it was during the AAVL uh, monthly community call that it's not always that you're able to combine your professional interest with your own personal and more selfish interest in, in advocacy as a blind person. So, but that's what I have done. I mean, I've worked in the field of vision rehab for, as Jeff said, for over 40 years, and now I'm able to continue that that um, those efforts through the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition, and combine that with uh, the advocacy efforts of ACP and the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. So without further ado, let me talk a little bit about the project. So this is a the, the Consumer Advocacy Project is, was developed under the auspices of the aforementioned Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition. And the Asian Vision Lost National Coalition has been around for a while, and the last three years or so has been housed um, graciously by um, the the Vision Serve Alliance. And therefore, you can find more information about the coalition on the the Vision Serve Alliance website, www.VisionServeAlliance.org. And then if you go to the list of links. One of the links will be the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition, more affectionately called AVLNC. And uh, as a coalition, we have a number of members, both individuals and organizations. And among the organizations are certainly ACB, as well as the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, uh, active members of the coalition. The purpose of the coalition is to expand and improve The availability of services and funding for people who are older uh, and are blind or visually impaired. Uh, So I gave you the website. Uh, So the, the, the Consumer Advocacy Project came about with the realization that there was a need to establish a a new cadre of advocates who are older and blind or visually impaired that would be able to help the the causes of the coalition, which are also the causes of all of of us, uh, improve services, expand funding uh, for older, blind, and visually impaired people. Um, One of the ultimate goals of this project or these new advocates was for them to be instrumental and in advocating for the Teddy Joyce law that the coalition hopes to be able to implement or to not implement, but to introduce in Congress in the future. Who knows when, how long these things take. Clark and Swata can tell you a lot more of how long these initiatives can take. But the Teddy Joyce law goals would be to increase services, expand the services available, um, and uh, establish a a new office within ACL that would deal specifically with aging and vision loss issues, uh, increase the availability of preparation programs for professionals, et cetera. Just to give you a sense of the enormity of the problem, um, obviously all of us are ge- are going older, and uh, the the numbers of people um uh, over the age of 40 with the uh, visual with blindness or visual impairment are about 12.5 million. The number is expected to grow by 118 percent, which will bring us bring that number up to about 27 million people or so by the 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 year 2050. Um, Right now, the majority of uh, funds available to serve this population are through the Older Individuals Who Are Blind Program, the OIB program, and the the, the thirty three million dollars that are annually allocated have not changed in uh, many many years. So, the statistics indicate that less than five percent of those that could ser- could benefit from these services are in fact accessing them. So enough of, of that, I'll go on, on with, with the actual topic of the, the our conversation, which is our Consumer Advocacy Project. So we started by assembling a group of both professionals uh, with knowledge in various topics and, uh, and advocates in the field of blindness or visually impaired. And we, we assemble a number of people, some of them will be very familiar to you. Uh, Daniel Norris, who is the Director of uh, Adult Services at the Vermont Association for the Blind and also an adjunct professor in vision rehab therapy at the at, uh, University of Massachusetts at, at Boston. Judy Chan- Shanley, Shanley, who is a National Director at Easter Seals, and her role focuses on issues of transportation, accessibility, and mobility management. Larry Johnson, Uh, Also, well-known advocate in in the in the among all of us, ACB, but also among the elderly and visually impairment issues, and of course, Jeff Tom um, also was a, a, a member of that group. The. The group first began to identify what else, what, are, what really come up with some definitions about what it is that we intended to do. Often, the the goals of advocacy of an advocacy group are often confused with self help and uh, peer support, etc. And although we we hope that those involved in this group will will uh, acquire a lot of peer support from each other. the the goals of the group are very different. So we began by identifying who are these people that we hope will will listen to our call and become involved. And we're talking about people who are older, obviously, people who are blind or visually impaired, and people that have gone through the whole uh, stages of grief, uh, denial, all those things that we have learned in school, uh, are comfortable with their blindness, and are ready to take on um, advocacy in specific issues. We estimate that the the the, the group. Let, let me go back. Excuse me for a second. So, so once we did that, then we began identifying. Okay, what is it that we need to include in this curriculum? And you identify. We identified four phases of consumer advocacy which I will come to in just a second. And then we decided that the best way to practice these various phases and strategies associated with them, the best way to do it would be by applying them to specific topics. So we we identified topics that are very well known to us, things like um, uh, interaction with the medical community, uh, emergency emergency, uh, preparedness, transportation, uh, availability of medical, um, um, availability of vision rehab services or services available to blind people within the aging network, um, uh, availability of funding through Medicaid for services. And finally, strategies for uh, developing a um, effective relationship with your elected, elected official. So the, the goal was to really use these topics as a way to stimulate brainstorming, role-playing, and the application of strategies for advocacy. So we, we don't Unfortunately, I, I, I can't promise you that at the end of these initiatives, we'll have the transportation issue solved or the aging network availability of services solved. Uh, this, will, this will take a lot more work, but we will these topics will enable us to go through and implement these phases and work on uh, what are some of those strategies that are most effective when advocating. So what we thought today we would do that might work and will be, I think will be fun, was to identify these four phases that we implement, will plan to implement in this curriculum, and then apply them not to the topics that we identify in the curriculum, but to a new topic, a topic that Jeff Tom has identified, a topic that is real, and that uh, has happened, has taken place in California, and Jeff was able to to be instrumental in in the advocacy efforts leading to its resolution. So if we can do it, uh, I think it should be a good way to exemplify how we see the implementation of this consumer advocacy project in the future. And then once we do that, once we go through these four phases, we'll come back and talk a little bit about next steps and how we plan to implement this this project. Sound good, Jeff? Sounds good. All right. So, the first first phase, and this will come with no surprise to anybody, is is the the need to to clearly describe the problem, the situation, the challenge that we want to address. Uh, what's been done in the past? What worked? What didn't work? Uh, and then, uh, again, clearly specify what is it that we want to do or we want to change. So,
5: so I'm going to tell you a little bit about a advocacy project that occurred in California. We started he- <clears throat> hearing, and not just in California, but throughout the nation, about a lot of problems with people who are blind or have low vision Either falling over or being run into by electric scooters, and these electric scooters were uh, are, are normally rented. Uh, manufacturers rent them to individuals. They use them for a short period of time, and quite frequently they would just, uh, you know, they, they use a credit card to rent them with. And quite frequently, they just leave them right in the middle of the sidewalk and, you know, pedestrians would fall over them. And sometimes they'd get injured. Sometimes they wouldn't. They had no idea who to, you know, talk to about the problem. And cities weren't doing anything. Cities often wanted these scooters because they charged the companies money to for business licensing and things like that. So, um addressing the issue began with um uh one of our members from california i might add gene lozano who uh came to the acd resolutions committee about four years ago and the membership ultimately passed a sort of wide-ranging resolution saying hey we need to do something about this problem cities need to do a better job in regulating e-scooters electric scooters i'm going to avoid the word e-scooters, because oh, I think it's <laughs> he's more easily interpretable <laughs> as electric. Um, <clears throat> so so with that, we in California decided we had to try and address that problem of people falling over and being hurt by scooters. And now I'll turn it back to an for the next phase.
6: Great. So the next phase, obviously, is what is <clears throat> what is it that one wants to to do about that? what What is the change what <clears throat> we wish to um, to accomplish? And whenever possible, you want to make sure that you develop that it, as, as you identify the change needed, that you identify goals that are measurable. So the the more specific the goals, the more be- measurable they are, the better you will be able to go back and and determine whether or not you 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 have been you are being successful or not. So often we refer to those goals as smart goals, uh, specific, measurable, achievable, and um, time um, timely. So, what was your goal, then, Jeff?
5: So we looked at what California had. Well, before that. Um, our goal was to somehow have a remedy so that people, if they were injured, would have a way to get compensated for their injury. Um, We would have preferred a goal of getting these scooters off the streets and and not having to deal with them. But that goal was not achievable. Um, You know, environmentalists like them, you know, the bicycle coalitions like them. The cities like them because, as I said, they made money. So we had to come up with something that we could do. We looked at the law in California, and one of the things we noticed, which was rather interesting, was that the manufacturers had to have insurance for these electric scooters. But the insurance didn't have anything to do with someone who fell over one or got hit by one, didn't help the pedestrians at all. It only helped the uh, user of the scooter if they happened to get injured. That obviously didn't help us any. So we decided, why not just expand this whole insurance to include the people who were injured by scooters as well? And I'll stop right there. So that was what we decided to do. And we decided to come up with ways that we could measure the success of, of, of our um, our initiative, and that's what we decided to shoot for.
6: Good. So that sounds like a, a very specific specific goal. Uh, once once that is established, obviously the the you need the the strategies that require to achieve those goals. And there are some questions that one you may you may ask yourself to help you guide to guide you through that process.
5: So we so, uh, let me
6: just oh, go ahead. One. So it's, some of those questions might be: Who are the ultimate influ, uh, influencers or or decision makers that you want to reach? Who who are the some potential partners you may have? What are some potential methods for reaching out to to those influencers? What is the message we want you wanted to craft, and how how might social media be uh, used as a resource to get that message across to the to the community?
5: So the first thing we did is we found a legislator to author our bill, and we were lucky in this regard. The first one we came to was willing to do it because we chose wisely. We knew a member who was a former city councilman in LA, and this member was number one, known, uh, knew actually, Mitch Pomerant. So we figured that would be a help. And number two, this member's brother was blind. He lived in Baltimore. He actually came to California and testified for us once or twice. Um, he was a vice principal in the school system back in in the Baltimore area. And so we figured he might have an affinity for our, and he did. He, uh, Our member, Mr. Jones-Sawyer, he hopped right on this bill. We looked for people who would be our allies. We looked for other pedestrian groups. We especially looked for disability rights organizations. Um, for example, folks with mobility impairments. We certainly turned to the National Federation of the Blind of California and got their support um so we tried to have cast a wide net um our messaging sort of had to change because first we tried to book this as a very small change and the scooter industry was outraged they said everything from you're going to ruin our industry there won't be any more scooters if we have to have this insurance and why should there be insurance um, for electric scooters? Uh, why should we be protecting pedestrians? They, they should, you know, deal with their own issues. Um, and so there was the, the bicycle coalition hopped on their bandwagon, and so we had all sorts of um, difficulties, especially the first year of our journey. We um, tried to negotiate. No one wanted to negotiate, uh, but we we kept at it. We started to alter our message a lot to try and really get across the fact that this is no different than insurance for automobiles or anything like that. If If you are negligent, and in this case, you had to be negligent for the insurance to kick in, if you're negligent, you should be able to. Uh, be liable for the costs that you create, the injuries that you cause, and um, although we faced a, a lot of hurdles over that first year, uh, and I'll even go so far as to say we almost lost our bill because and, and Gabe Griffith and I, president of the of CCB, had a late night conversation, and they said, "Look, we'll let we can get your bill passed." but you have to make the insurance optional. And we're like our members are even irritated that we're not getting more than we're getting. And you want us to totally, you know, make the bill into something optional, optional where nobody has to have insurance at all if they don't want to. So we said, look, we'll drop the bill if we can if we can't keep it uh mandatory. So we came back the next year and now I'll let uh,
6: I'll let initial uh, go on with the next phase right and 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 um, so the difference between or the the way some of these phases work, obviously they they it, it's not there's not always a clear defined line between one and the other and you you go forward and you come back and you do a little bit of one and you go you try um there's always a back and forth uh going on, but the phase four is really that. It's pressing forward. As as one moves along, you can't forget to pause sometimes and and reflect on your progress and measure the the effectiveness of your strategy. As you may want to, uh, you may want to ask yourself some of these questions. How do we know our efforts are working? How do we know this advocacy is being effective uh, at multiple levels? Do we need to change our approach? The more specific obviously going back to those goals, the more specific those goals are, the better you will be able to measure the extent to which you are able, to, you, you are being successful in attaining them. Um and that it, it sounds like that's what you you had been doing, uh, Jeff.
5: We did. And and during the last year, we actually changed our approach again in a couple of ways. Um First, we uh, exempted electric bicycles from the bill. Um, This did remove some of the opposition. Um, It didn't stop the bicycle coalition from trying to uh, get the bill uh, vetoed by our governor. Um, And then the other thing we had to do, and I don't think we have ever had at least not in the, you know, 40 years I've been a member, this of uh, this degree of uh, a letter-writing campaign. We g- literally got dozens and dozens and dozens of letters from members and other groups and, you know, wherever we could, friends, whatever, from all over the state uh, to the governor and um it's not that we haven't had letter writing campaigns before but this was the biggest we've ever had and we needed it because we had an industry and the bike folks against us so um we had to do that the other thing that we did is um and this is uh part of phase 4 we wanted to make sure that we could measure Um, how our goal was or was not being achieved. So we built in a study into the bill from our Department of Insurance so that in a few years, they're going to tell us, uh, you know, how often is this insurance being used? Is it helpful? Um, We lowered the limits from what we wanted to a a very minimal amount. $10,000 is the maximum for any injury. Um, is that enough uh you know is is the insurance available enough is it um is it inexpensive or does it cost too much for the for the industry even though the industry is just passing along the the amount to the renter of the scooter um so we built in a study and so we will get some data once this insurance requirement comes into play which it will in in on July 1 actually of this year
7: Hey guys, I hate to uh, interrupt here for a second. We've got a change of captioner and uh, we've got a captioner on the attendee side. Captioner Nancy, I've been sending you uh, a notice to uh, promote you to panelist and you have to accept that at your end. So you should be getting a message on your screen um, saying that the host is trying to promote you. And once we do that, unless you do, do that, we cannot assign you to captions. So kindly, if you could kindly do that, please. Thank you. All set. Sorry, guys.
5: You want us to wait until that's all done or?
7: No, it looks like she she did it. So we're okay. all set.
5: All right. Anisio,
6: back to you. Well, Jeff, that sounds like a, a, a wonderful success and one that we would not always, uh, and one that actually didn't take very long, right? How long did it take from the moment you started this process until legislation was enacted?
5: It took us two years. Um, As I said, the end of the first year, we almost lost everything, but we didn't give up. And so it was a two-year process. Uh, And in fact, it's an ongoing process. And this is interesting. We have actually had to come back this year because we adopted signage requirements. So there'd be braille and tactile and large print signage uh, that would give a person who, you know, was injured by one of these scooters enough information so that they could contact the company. Um, The company knows who's uh, driving the scooter, who's using it, because they get information when the person rents it. But you aren't going to know that name. So you have to contact the company and and so that they can, you know, process your claim if you have one. Um, It turned out our signage requirements were drafted in a way that made it difficult for the signs to be put on the scooters. So we're actually working again this year to modify the signage requirement. It doesn't impact our insurance though so, um, but we're sometimes you have to go back and revisit what you did. And this is part of advocacy.
6: That's that's great. That's, That's a great example. So let me let me give you just a uh I want to leave some time for questions if there are any but I, just in in brief uh, summarize what some of the next steps are. So the curriculum is completed. Um the it, it will be offered in um, um, sequential a sequence of seven sessions, weekly sessions of about an hour and a half and um and each each of the weeks, we will focus on a specific topic, as I said, whether it's transportation, um, emergency preparedness, aging network services, et cetera. And then within that context, we will be learning, the group members will be learning as much as possible about that topic, and then identifying some specific things that they would like to change or advocate for uh, within that topic. And then, um, and then work on that on their own, and then come back and you we know, use the next session, the beginning of the next session as a, a way to report on what they've done, what tools they used, uh, whether they use social media or not, what partners they identified and you know, all the things that Jeff talked about. Um, so it is important that people commit themselves to, to attend all seven sessions, and uh, our goal is to have the first group or pilot group uh, start sometime in probably April. And, um, and we're hoping probably to, to recruit uh, eight to 10 members from the members of Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. So not necessarily, I mean, it could be other ACB members as long as they are uh, older and, of course, blind and visually impaired and we'll use that as a pilot, uh, do an evaluation at the end of the the seven weeks, get feedback from the members on what worked and what didn't work, and hopefully uh, revise whatever, uh, make whatever revisions might be uh, warranted, and then uh, put it out there for others to use. Um, Initially, this obviously this was uh, developed during the pandemic. Uh, The first group is going to be it's going to be conducted over Zoom. Uh, but now that more and more people are returning to their organizations, and more and more face-to-face groups are, are taking place. Um, one organization could decide to, to implement this curriculum within their own um, their own in-person group. It's flexible enough to do that. So I think that's it for for, for this. I hope that you. You, if you're interested, is in, interested in these issues that you, and how would you not be if you're in this in the, attending this conference? Uh, you find out more about the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition, and by all means, if you're interested in participating, they are always looking for new members, people that are committed to improving services for for older blind and visually impaired people.
2: And I don't know if there are any questions. We do have one raised hand, Terry.
8: Thank you. Good afternoon, Jeff and Anisio. Hi, Um, Hi. Terry. It's Terry Pacheco. And um, I just wanted to thank you both for a very, very good presentation. Uh, Anisio, I definitely am interested in this seven-week program. All right. Um, And one other thing, uh, on the Older Independent Blind program, uh, just if anybody is interested, and I hope several people are, in the information about that and its history and such on the uh, ACB podcasts, the Visibilities podcast from last Friday is on the Older, older Independent Blind With Inicio did a great job on there as well, along with Mark Reichert and Scott Marshall, who were both involved with it way back in its inception. And that's available for anybody that would like to listen to that as well. Um, It's the most recent Visibilities podcast on the uh, podcast page of ACB. And I thank you both for doing such a great job today.
6: Thank you, Terry. It was was wonderful to be part of that. It was a lot of fun.
5: By the way, if in case Katie Frederick or any of you other Cincinnatiites is listening, you were the one place in the United States that beat the state of California to this insurance requirement. The city of Cincinnati adopted it, um, I think, in 2021, I think. And I am proud that you did that.
2: Not always that you can beat California. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, where you have another race hand. Doug.
7: Hi, uh, hi Jeff and Anisio, great job. Um, Could you give more details on when the material, you know, the application materials will be available and how they'll become available?
6: for to participate in the group in the yes. yeah, in,
7: in your in your uh, initial training
9: cadre yeah i
6: i think you know my my goal is to have all that available uh, early in april and uh, and then disseminated through through the alliance on aging and vision loss list serve as well as the leadership acb leadership uh list serve and um and If anyone has any other ideas of how to get that um, that across, you know I'm, I'm, I would welcome that. Great, thanks. But we already have one member, I guess, Terry. <laughs>
2: That's right Okay, <laughs> hey, next is Michael
9: Hello. Uh, hey, Michael. in. My city of about 150,000, so small potatoes compared to California. We do have the scooters and to my knowledge, and I do hear about the scooters quite frequently, we have not had any injuries with a moving scooter, but we have had problems with the uh, scooters being parked both by users that abandoned them and by the company across accessible paths of travel and thus causing potential injury for people who are blind in terms of their accessible path of travel needs and also for uh, people with orthopedic disabilities. Uh, And I serve on a uh, city uh, advisory council on disability issues. We've had some success in getting the company to address this problem, but my question is, in the insurance laws that you have gotten adopted, is there any provision for a, a scooter injuring someone or being a problem when not in possession of a rentor, but because of being unsafely parked or
5: abandoned? You mean essentially when it's a private party using their own scooter? No. No. No, I'm referring to the rental
9: scooters that you're describing. I think it's probably one of the same companies that... Uh, yeah, I'm sure it is. And uh, the problem was that they were parking uh, the scooters on or across uh, detectable warnings. Uh, they were blocking uh, wheelchair ramps as well as warnings and basically impairing the accessible path of travel as is required uh, by provisions of the ADAG with the way their scooters were being parked, Uh, sometimes by the companies uh, setting the scooters up that way, and sometimes by them being abandoned and not removed from those types of locations. And so the potential for injury uh, was that someone would run into or be taken off of a path of travel and therefore be injured because of the existence of a scooter which was not at the time being rented by anyone, but simply parked unsafely. And So, I would, if, if your if,
5: insurance if, has to pay you, yeah. Money. If the if the scooter is rented and then parked, and it is not, you know, re rented by someone else then there is going to be the likelihood that you're going to be able to blame that user for the negligence. You could also, of course, even in, because the company itself won't have insurance, but you could also, you know, if you want sue these companies because they got deep pockets, but um, e- even in the absence of insurance, but um if you wanted to claim that the company should have uh, known where the scooter was and moved it but in this case you could you could you you could still claim against the individual's insurance because they're the one that parked it and it was their negligence thank you I
9: think that answers my question but I will clarify Stop. that the company oh I mean uh I I just want to clarify that the the company sometimes parks the scooters all in a row and they serve. Okay. They were also blocking the accessible path of travel. Then you'd want to sue the company.
6: Yeah.
5: There's nothing that prohibits that. Thank you.
6: Any other questions?
10: Yes, we do. Um,
5: I think we're almost at time, too.
2: We have one other raised hand.
5: Yep, and we have five minutes.
2: All right. 317, ending in 317. Go ahead.
11: Hi, this is Pat Toosing. I don't know if this is um, part of the insurance thing, but there's a a whole um, bank of scooters parked in front of the bus stop and blocking traffic. Is there any way we could work with the other channels to get these things
5: uh, get the police to tow these things? Well, um, you know, there are cities, for example, there was a move in San Francisco. Um, and in fact, one scooter company has already left, but there was a move. And basically the, the groups were saying, look, if you don't, and they even had members of the board of supervisors agreeing with them, if you don't clean up your act to these companies, we will kick you out. So you can certainly try uh, uh, to go to your, you know, however it's regulated, whether it's regulated by your local government, which it frequently is, or by the state, which it usually isn't. And, you know, ask them, you know, to outlaw scooters completely. We thought about that in California, but we knew we'd never get it. So we didn't go that route. And
10: that looks like all the race hands unless there is a question in the chat box.
5: Or the question and answer box there sure is not okay. all right well i thank you for listening i hope it was informative uh and i'll leave any last words for anisio yeah
6: thank you jeff and and please uh keep on the alert for any messages about this on the leadership list and the aavl listserv uh in the beginning of april and uh, i look forward to uh to, uh, if that's an incentive or a disincentive, I'll be the one conducting the group, the third pilot group. So I look forward to um, to working with some of you, hopefully, to to um, improve the, the curriculum and make it available um, on a wider basis afterwards. But thank you again, and thanks, thanks ACB for the opportunity to highlight this project.
1: Jeff and Anicio, thank you so much for for this session and the continued advocacy work uh, that you are both undertaking in this regard.
6: Mark, let me also congratulate Suata. I think she might have been the person, non Portuguese speaker, that has pronounced my last name as closely as as it can be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, thank you. I don't know where she got that, but it was perfect.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks everyone. Thank Bye. you. And folks, before our next session about our ongoing advocacy work related to accessible at-home testing, we would like to share an overview of one of our other legislative imperatives that was touched on by Representative Dingle earlier today and that is the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. To give the overview of another one of our legislative imperatives, the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, please take it away, Swatha Nandakumar.
3: Thank you, Clark. Um, Yeah, so this imperative is the Medical Device Non-visual, accessibility Act. Um, this was an imperative from last year. It's already paid, but we need to get introduced because because we have, get, cause, cause we have a new Congress in session. So, last last Congress bills were all are all done and over with. So this you at the this time it's time to get new bills introduced. Um, so what what this bill does it is it um, Requires FDA to consult with the Access Board and create standards—not just, just standards for um, what the FDA calls Class Two and Class Three medical medical devices. So what these are are these are slightly slightly more more invasive and carry more carry more risk if you use them incorrectly. Um, that these are devices like um, heart heart monitors or glucose monitors or um pressure readers so all things that have a digital inter- interface that tells you like what's going on with, what would you what, what numbers are n- n- numbers and readings um so these devices have, have historically been inaccessible and it's inaccessible inaccessible, 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 to blind folks and deaf-blind folks and visual vision folks because they do not have speech output or tactile markers or anything that kind of make, make it accessible for a blind person to use. So this bill was introduced last, not last year, um, 21 by Jen in the House and it had no Senate companion, but, but but it was a person So there was sixty over sixty co-sponsors and um from both parties. So both Democrat and Republican sponsors. So um I will take get take it up leave it to Clark to tell you
1: um
3: it means for us.
1: Thank you so much, Swatha. And I just want to highlight a couple of things here. Um, Yes, this was a bipartisan piece of legislation. So both Democrats and Republicans went on the record supporting this legislation in the House of Representatives, saying that this is important. The Food and Drug Administration must create accessibility standards for uh, remote diagnostic and durable medical equipment. Uh, and I apologize before for not recognizing the speak uh, excuse me the uh the listeners and the audience members that are joining us by listening to the Spanish language feed for tonight's community event on this legislative imperative so thank you thank you to our Spanish listening audience as well and as we talk about our audience members Uh, We want to talk about why this is important for our members, whether English or Spanish speaking. You know, many people in the United States who are blind, low vision, and deafblind also have additional either chronic or comorbid health conditions. Uh, We see this a lot with working aged adults in the United States who have diabetes as the leading cause of blindness for people in this age bracket. And this is also uh, diabetes being a condition that disproportionately impacts people of color, such as people with Hispanic heritage, who may be more likely to be listening on our Spanish language feed. In addition to diabetes, we have older Americans that have age-related vision loss who may have other chronic or comorbid health conditions as well. And we know from data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that people who are blind and low vision, in addition to diabetes and obesity, are more likely to have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, hypertension, and heart disease. So this is why it's so important that these medical devices and remote monitoring equipment are accessible for people who are blind and low vision if these other chronic and comorbid conditions were not bad enough we just spent the last two years in the middle of a pandemic a pandemic where going out and about and taking trips to the doctor's office became more dangerous unto themselves During this time, we saw rapid growth in the adoption of telemedicine and virtual doctor's visits. Many of these visits and appointments uh, are done in conjunction with home and remote monitoring equipment that relays information to our physicians, to our doctors. It's important that people who are blind and low vision have the same independent and private access to this equipment, to these medical tools as the rest of the population, so that they can be used safely, they can be used effectively, and that they can convey vital and necessary information to our care teams. Once we have accessibility built in to these products, the end goal is a world where people who are blind in low vision have more control, more independence, more privacy, and we can take back control of our own health. I'll now turn it back to my colleague Swatha Nandu Kumar, to talk about what this means for ACB's larger advocacy efforts.
3: Yeah, thanks, thank, thank you, Clark. Um, so. We have a committee, or several committees, focused on health and wellness. Um, this includes our Get Up and Get Moving campaign, our committee, not committee anymore, they're committee now. Um, also, our committee that deals with advocacy, advocacy services and information access. Those all, you know, have been on the front lines of, of having, of the accessibility, accessibility, of our medical, medical devices and our in our um, at home diagnostic equipment, like Claire mentioned, glucose, glucose monitors and heart monitors, and all the devices that you might need to use in our remote, in our remote telehealth visit. Um, we also have an affiliate, ACBDA or ACB. Diabetics in Action, which um, deals with, which advocates for and deals with people with diabetes and in um, and, and addition to, to blindness. So this is not a new issue for, for any of them. And it, yeah, it's not an issue for any of them. And um, this bill is really kind of a great way for us to advocate for accessibility. To be, to be built in at the outset and not at the retrofit. So this bill really really promotes accessibility being built in in at at begin beginning stages of development and not at the end, like at the after result, as most things are. I can't of things. Um, also, though, this bill has been introduced introduced last introduced in last Congress and um edit by, by bipartisan and bipartisan even though it's not um even though, even though it was not in um, both introduced both in both chambers of Congress in in um, both the house and Senate we're hoping that this year with the momentum it, it had from previous from, from last from last Congress that this bill will be and and by the that that will be sponsored by both parties and um introduced introduced and sponsored in both in both Senate and and both Senate and the house. So go on the ideals
1: thank you Swathan. and at this point i would just like to again urge everyone please join us in advocating for another one of our legislative imperatives the medical device non-visual accessibility act please urge your members of congress to co-sponsor this important legislation once it is reintroduced in the 118th congress like swatha said we are excited for this bill to be reintroduced in the house we are optimistic with the work that was done this bill will be introduced in the senate and in both chambers of congress this must be a bipartisan piece of legislation so again keep advocating and support the medical device non-visual accessibility act all right. And my, what a difference just a few days can make, uh, because this presentation was done, I, I believe, a week ago, right, Swatha, last Monday?
3: Yes. Uh, getting
1: folks prepared for, for the Leadership Conference and their meetings with their elected officials. And since that time, on March 1st, Representative Schakowsky reintroduced the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. It is, once again, a bipartisan piece of legislation. And as we already heard earlier today during the participation of Representative Debbie Dingell, both the Democratic and Republican co-chairs of the Congressional Bipartisan Disabilities Caucus are co-sponsors of this legislation.
3: Yep, it really shows what a priority this is for Congress and for people with
1: disabilities. Absolutely. And it also dovetails nicely with our next conversation uh, related to still more on ACB's advocacy in the accessible health and wellness space. Uh, We'd like to take this time to welcome back ACB President Dan Spoon to kick off our next conversation.
12: Thank you, Clark, thank you, Swatha. It's uh, really a, a wonderful opportunity to be here today and have a chance to talk with a true partner uh, within our accessibility and advocacy efforts. Uh, and I believe at this point in time, would you like me uh, to introduce uh, uh, our guest? featured guest, Clark? Please. All right. Okay. Well, I am very honored uh, to welcome today to our discussion, uh, Dr. Jill Heemskirt. She is the Deputy Director of the National Institutes of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, affectionately known as NIBIB, I did not realize until we started getting involved with the National Institutes of Health that they actually have 27 different institutes inside of their organization. It's a very extensive agency. And uh, Dr. Heemsker has really been a very strong ally of the American Council of Blind. She spoke at our convention in Omaha uh, this last summer, gave us an update there, but more and more just keeps happening and developing when it comes to accessible uh, home testing kits for COVID, as well as the idea of expanding uh, home testing kits and their accessibility in all kinds of different forms and avenues. So welcome, Dr. Heemsker.
13: Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here.
12: So we have, we've, I was thinking back, this partnership has now been going on for well over a year. That's just, it seems hard to believe (laughs) that we're coming up in a year since we got together for that first conversation where you all pulled in representatives from across the disabled community and really focused in what three key areas with our senior and aging population. Those with fine motor skill uh, disabilities, and also those of us in the blind and low vision community.
13: That's right. That was the end of March last year, so we're coming up on our uh, one-year anniversary.
12: Yes, it's, it's just it's pretty amazing. And right from our first uh, first meeting, I just really got a sense. Um, of how much NIBIB was really interested in understanding the accessibility challenges for their uh, COVID-19 testing products. So um, could you go through a little bit maybe to explain to our larger audience today, um, kind of the steps you all have gone through over the last year to bring accessible COVID testing kits to our population?
13: Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, So um, I want to start by talking about our um, NIBIB-run program called RADx, Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, which was set up to um, develop COVID tests during the pandemic. And um, once I give you a sense of how Radex itself works, I'll tell you what we've been doing for um, access- accessible tests and um, the progress that we've made since we last met. So um, NIBIB is one of 27 institutes. As Dan pointed out, we are a small one, but we're entirely focused on engineering. And so when Congress was looking for an NIH Institute to take charge of developing COVID tests at the very start of the pandemic in 2020, they looked to NIBIB because we had a longstanding program called the Point of Care Technology Research Network or POCTURN, which had been in place since 2007. And the goal was to develop point of care and home tests for Um, lots of different diseases. And Congress, you know, when we were, if you think back in the day of waiting in car lines for hours, and then waiting one or two weeks for your test result to come back, Congress was really um, excited about the notion of first expanding um, laboratory testing so that it was itself more accessible, but also developing home tests and tests that can be used at the point of care in doctor's offices or clinics or um, pharmacies so that everybody can get rapid results um, and rapid diagnosis. And so they gave us um, $500 million at the start of the pandemic, um, which was a huge expansion of our funding for um, point of care technology development, and over time, over the last three years of the pandemic, we've attracted a total of 1.7 billion dollars. So we're we're quite an engine now, um, as as I will describe to you. And the reason that we are rapid accelerators of diagnostics is that we're we don't just give money to companies to develop a new test we have a, a system in place where we have hundreds of experts in, in all the domains required for bringing a new test to market. So technology, business development, regulatory development, commercialization, and manufacturing. And we, for each company that we support, we do give them funding, but we also give them this wraparound team that works with them to solve any problem that may arise, including supply chain issues or hiccups with the FDA. And it's this very hands-on um, process that allows companies to quickly overcome um, problems that that may arise, either technology where we um, do a lot of work to understand the root cause of why a test might suddenly not be working as it was intended, or um, problems with um, getting equipment to build a new manufacturing line. And so this kind of partnership structure has been um, extremely helpful to the companies developing COVID tests, and we've managed to shrink the development timeline from what is typically a six-year process to get a new medical device on the market from idea to to marketplace. We've shrunk that six years down to as little as six months now. Um, and so, what the way we do that is, um, as I said, we. Work with the companies closely, but we we also set up large cores that can conduct independent testing. So we have a validation core at Emory, where they um, they test the tests. They have a huge bank of, of samples and they put the tests through their paces and get data that is good enough for the FDA to to um, have some confidence in what the results are. We also have a clinical studies core that runs clinical trials of the tests um, as as are required for getting emergency use authorization from the FDA. And we have a deployment core, which is really a unique structure that we set up with the COVID funding that is responsible for um, getting a product that... um, that has been developed, getting it all the way to the market. So helping with manufacturing issues, helping with, um, um, business issues, helping with, um, getting through the regulatory process. We have, um, we got a huge number of applications, 824 different organizations approached us, um, to develop a, a new COVID test. And, um, We put all of these um, project proposals through a series of reviews. First, the the more standard paper review that NIH does, but then we had a hands-on phase called the shark tank, where for two weeks, the expert team works with the applicant to really understand their technology, what data they have, what does the company look like, what are the chances of success, And for tests that seemed like they could go the distance, they would go into a de-risking phase where all of the risks to development that were identified in the shark tank were hammered out. And for tests where the the de-risking phase, which would would take anywhere from uh, six weeks to a few months, um, tests that emerged from this de-risking went into full um, funding for manufacturing and deployment. And over time, we've worked with um, about hundred companies to develop tests. We have, um, these companies have achieved 52 different FDA emergency use authorizations, and 14 of those EUAs are for over-the-counter home tests. And in fact, this program, um, a- uh, uh, got the first ever over-the-counter EUA from the FDA, so we're very proud of that. What What has happened, of course, over the the through the course of the pandemic is that um, whereas testing at the start was primarily in the lab, most of the testing now is done at home. Most of the testing is done by individuals at home, and about half of the home tests in the country that are available now emerged from companies that were that participated in the RADx program. Thanks. So just, just as an example of the power of this program, and as I said, it's funding, it's in-kind expertise and support, but it's also government partnerships. And one of the biggest accelerants of our program is our close collaboration with the FDA. When the government decided to make tests freely available to um, to um, households in the U.S., they realized that there just weren't enough tests in the U.S. market that had FDA authorization to even launch the program, and so th- we put our heads together with the FDA to think how can we get. Um, Tests that are on the market elsewhere, ready to go, seem to be working well. How can we get them through the FDA process and allow them to be sold in the U.S.? We set up a program called ITAP, which is the Independent Test Assessment Program. And the FDA told us, here's the data that we want to see for the laboratory, for the clinic what we want to know about the manufacturing process and about the company. And if RADx independently gathers this data and submits it to us, we will have great confidence that that, that that data is correct and believable and we'll be able, and it will come with the exact data that we need. So we'll be able to quickly turn around an emergency use authorization typically the the time it, it can be months to years of it that it takes to get an EUA and a lot of that time is spent going back and forth with the FDA to so that the FDA understands the data <coughs> excuse me may ask for additional testing
12: etc so
13: <laughs> I'm so sorry. Hang on well, one t- second.
12: Take a moment there and pause, Doc. <laughs> yeah.
13: Okay. <clears throat> Let's see if I can go on.
7: Okay. All right.
13: I'm so sorry about that. I'm talking too much. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so. Through these kinds of government partnerships and company partnerships, we've had a tremendous impact on the testing landscape in the country. But soon after the government announced the free test distribution program, the government received some very targeted and effective outreach from ACB and other advocacy groups pointing out that there are not accessible tests that can be used independently by everyone. And this was such an aha moment for us when we realized the truth of that. And we immediately took that on as our highest priority to um, make tests available that could be used by more people. If I
12: can just recall, when we f- had our first opportunity, when we were all together, Dr. Heemskirt, you, you walked us through two or three of the tests and how they worked. And I remember just asking a very <laughs> stupid, simple question, which was, were you able to do these with your eyes closed? And you said, no way. It was <laughs> so obvious to me we had a problem.
13: Yes, yes, Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that listening session was such a, a wonderful experience. We had um, nine different advoca- advocacy groups, seven different federal agencies that have accessibility as part of their mission, and we um, just and we had our engineering team and said, "Tell us what what do you find challenging." because um, much of it is obvious and and things that everybody finds challenging, all the little bits of plastic that are hard to identify in the box, all of the um, complex, tiny print instructions, the the, uh, multi-steps that you have to do, counting drops of liquid into tiny little holes, Um, And then no clear result readout. So at the end of all this process, which can be, um, it's on average, the number of steps that you have to do from opening the box to throwing the the used test away, the average number of tests of steps is something like 65. It's it's Mm. an enormous, uh, complicated process. at the end, you get a little strip, you get a little line on a strip and it's very difficult to read if you have any um, impairment to to vision at all. And so um, the test is, you know, just simply not useful independently. So we, we, we came to understand the problem better and then engineers being who they are they love a problem and they start trying to solve it. That's that's their that's their life's blood. And we set up a program where um <clears throat> we worked and we didn't want to just have that one listening session either. And and um ACB, thank you. You've been so generous with your time over the past year working with us regularly, regularly and repeatedly to come together and check on how we're doing and seeing the directions that we're going in and making suggestions. Um, We have a process where we have um, identified engineers and designers who themselves are blind or low vision. And we have reviewers on our panel looking at our proposals and prototype ideas from the blind, the aging and the motor impairment populations. So we, have had close engagement with the advocacy communities throughout the last year and it's been tremendously helpful um we have a, a multi-step process of working with the companies we started with 25 different companies um, who have over-the-counter tests already on the market and we're partners in radix and um Over time, we've narrowed it down to 12 that we're working closely with to make modifications. Many of the modifications are are to the instructions. The instructions are not easily readable by the typical electronic means that people have. Um, Other other modifications are to the design itself of the test. And we have just submitted an EUA application for a very simple test design. I was hoping we would get it in time for this meeting, but be looking out for that. Um, simple two-part test, do the swab, click the swab into the, the test and, and just wait for 15 minutes and you get a result. Now, it's not, a, it's not an independently readable result. It still has to be visually read, um, but, Far, I, I think far better what we're hearing, far better to be able to at least conduct the test independently, even if you have to get assistance reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're uh, continuing to go through this process now. Some of the modifications to the boxes and the instructions have already been rolled out by the companies. They're going to be appearing over the next year. Um, and there is this one uh, new test that emerged from the program that one of our companies redesigned their test completely um, that, that will also be coming out soon. We're, we're looking at the um, process all the way from when you buy it in the store, all the way to when you throw it away at the end to look think about accessibility from many, many different um, angles. And we've learned a tremendous amount in doing this. We've learned a lot from the advocacy groups, from our um, the, the designers and reviewers who are blind and low vision and from the companies and the FDA. We've, we've just learned a tremendous amount and we started to become concerned that all this learning might be lost if we didn't preserve it somewhere. And so we have now produced a um, best practices document that we partnered with the U.S. Access Board to post on the web, and it's a 92-page page document that talks about how to make home tests more accessible, and it lists um, many, many different challenges and their proposed solutions. Um, this is an interim document, and we are going to be updating it in early summer. But really it's it's focused on COVID, but it, it is now sort of a generalizable roadmap for industry to build more accessible home devices more broadly. About 80% of the content involves things like instructions and packaging and um and and how to manipulate things that are not specific to COVID tests at all. So I, I think this stands potentially to have um, a broad impact on the on the market. Um, Gabrielle, did you have a question? Sorry, just seeing your hand.
12: Oh, we'll we'll take hands in in, in a little bit uh, in a few minutes, uh, Dr. Heemsker. Okay, okay. Yeah.
13: I'll 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 wrap up with a few more <laughs> comments then. Um, so um, if you want to see the best practices document. Um, on the U.S. Access Board website, the uh, easiest way I've found to find it is by putting uh, into Google the search terms RADx best practices. And it comes up as the first hit. The uh, The link is a little bit convoluted, I, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I want to tell you about, and I, I this will not be a terribly satisfying update because we don't have the results yet, but but I wanted to tell you about the user survey that we conducted um, under the urging of the ACB and others um, to, to get uh, real-world feedback from people using available tests. So we Put out a survey. This came out of the home labs at Emory. Put out a survey saying, uh, you know, how easy was it for you to use test X? And um, gathering information about people's real life experience, um, we got 550 responses to that survey, which was great. And um, interestingly, about 75% of those respondents. Are either blind or low vision. And so we think that there's just going to be a wealth of information there that will help us um, think about our test redesign and our test design from the ground up, um, and also will help inform the best practices document when we put out the next iteration this summer.
12: Well, um, Dr. Heveskert, the The really exciting news that Brian and Kim and others shared with us here a couple of months ago, if you could spend just a little bit of time and talk about the RADx3 program, and I believe there's two different um, phases or components to that, but to me, this is really kind of leveraging what we learned through the COVID testing and now applying it to home tests in general. And it just seems like it's an amazing opportunity for accessibility across all types of home tests.
13: Yes, um, I'm, I'm excited for the very same reason. So <laughs> it's our third uh, solicitation for tests. Um, there are t- there were two solicitations in one. One was for um, accessible tests. So same current best in class technology, like a rapid antigen test, for example, but design it with home use in mind. Um, You know, a lot of these uh, tests that are on the market started out as point of care tests that um, a lab technician was meant to conduct, counting little drops into a little hole is not, you know, for the faint of heart. So uh, what happened was, We had all these point of care tests and the fastest way to get home tests on the market was to kind of rejigger them a little bit, put them in a box and sell them on the shelves. But they're obviously quite clunky. So um, starting with universal accessible design from the beginning is is really what's going to give us the best tests for the best, most accessible tests. And we are—we got 51 different applications. We're going through a rolling review process now, um, and we're um, we're selecting tests for funding and this wraparound in-kind uh, development acceleration. Um, we're selecting tests that can get to the EUA stage in a 12 to 18 month window, and then the second part of this RADx tech three solicitation, focuses on high performance tests. Now this addresses another element of frustration with the current home tests, which is if you get a positive, you're confident that you have COVID. If you get a negative, it's a little more um, questionable. And the the recommendation is wait 48 hours and take a second test Mm. to be sure. that's, you know, that's very frustrating if you're, if you, especially if you have symptoms and you're negative. Um, and so what we would like is to have tests in the home that are rapid, but are just as reliable at giving you a, a positive or negative answer as the PCR test in the lab. And the exciting, other exciting part about this initiative is that accessibility is included as one of the requirements for any test that gets developed here. So these will be high performance accessible tests um, because th- these are based on new technology that has to be developed from an earlier stage. We're allowing a three-year um, timeline for development. We received 167 applications most of them focused on not just COVID, but COVID and flu, or COVID, flu, and RSV. So multiplex test, which is another thing that will be great to have. If you have symptoms and you get a negative COVID test, well, you still don't know what you have. So <laughs> this this is hoped to really um, kick things up a notch. Um, so we are, you know, continuing to build new. Um, accessible tests over the next few years. And um, we're also, through partnership with other institutes at NIH that work on specific disease areas, we're um, doing partnership RADx solicitations. For example, there's one on maternal health. There's one on um, HIV. There, There was one for MPOX. So we're trying to develop tests for Lots of different diseases in partnership with the institutes that work on those diseases, and all of those will also have accessibility as a focal point. So I think it, we, you know, you can't help but imagine that um, there will be a natural evolution because the increased accessibility benefits everybody. Everybody's yep. frustrated yep. with these terrible tests. I mean, I sh- it's better <laughs> than sitting in a car line, but. You know, they can be better and everyone wants them to be better. And when the better ones start coming out, I think that's going to spread um, across the market to home medical devices. Once the principles are understood, as as they will be when, for example, the practice guidelines are adopted, um, companies are very eager to work with us, very excited to get our suggestions, but they don't know what to do until we tell them. So it's not, it's just not obvious. It's—it's—we've it's been a year of deep study, deep learning from the communities. And um, I think it's really important that we make sure that this, this knowledge is preserved and built upon and applied in lots of different areas. And so I guess I'll stop there.
12: And Dr. Heemsker, you, you said the magic words there about five minutes, minutes ago, universal design built in, in the beginning with the design, mm-hmm. not added on after the fact. Yes. Yeah. It just truly makes all the difference. And how much is the funding for the RADx3
13: project? Um, the Radex 3 project has about um, 200 million dollars behind it..
12: Mm-hmm. pretty significant amount of money. It,
13: it is and um, I think it's it's amply funded that we will be seeing a, a, you know a good handful or two handfuls of new products on the street coming out of the initiative. We've got some really exciting applications.
12: Nah, that's fantastic, and, and what a great partnership. We really appreciated it, Clark. Swatha, any questions from you before we open it up for questions from our uh, from our members?
3: I have one. Sure, um, go ahead, Swatha. So, Dr. Hans-Kirk, um In addition, um, so many of our members have um, in addition to blindness, and um, they have other disabilities like a. Dexterity game here like I do, or um, they're older or they have cognitive disabilities. So um what can you can you kind of speak to the progress being made on um people with the like, accessibility for multiple multiple disabled people disabled people?
13: Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. We did in our listening session initially have um, people representing the elderly population, people with um, motor disabilities, and people with blindness and people with low vision. So we had some um, diversity in there. We found that many of the challenges were common across those groups. But at the same time, there were challenges that were specific. So, for example, Different preferences about whether you want um instructions in the box or instructions that are read digitally. You know, depending on how you live your life, one thing um the, the older population is not so interested in electronic instructions as the younger generation, for example. Um, so and and not everyone has a cell phone. So um There's not quite a one size fits all, but we found that for some of the simpler design concepts, um, they really will be very broadly accessible as long as the instructions are available in multiple forms.
12: And Dr. Go ahead,
1: Clark. Sure, and and Dr. Hemsworth, this is Clark Rockfall. Thank you for your time here today. Uh, you know, we we are still seeing announcements of the you know the Food and Drug Administration, for example, just recently approved a new at home test uh, that can test for both COVID variants as well as the flu. Um, so I I don't imagine these tests are going to go away, right? It, just like we see the growth in telemedicine and Uh, at-home medical equipment, what what is your sense on where at-home medicine and at-home testing will go in the future?
13: Um, I I completely agree with you, Clark, that this is not going to go away. I, I know that a lot of the companies who started out focused on COVID home tests have diversified their product lines in development um and we've all been trained now with the convenience that we can get a home test and use it and find our 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 answer quickly um it i i don't i don't think the country wants to go backward and i think the we've been we've been given that convenience and want to have it more broadly in lots of different areas so um, I, I think one of the upsides of COVID, if there is to be one, is that it has sort of propelled us forward in the evolution toward telemedicine.
12: True, and it's brought a lot of advantages, and it's also brought a lot of challenges to our community, as you can imagine, with accessible uh, medical portals uh, and in accessible really durable medical equipment so it's kind of as, as we move and we just read the book who moved our cheese dr. Eames skirt and and it's been interesting to deal that change is inevitable and how we deal with it is so important and it's just what's so obvious is that the ch- change just keeps coming and mm-hmm. so how do we adjust yeah
14: mm-hmm.
12: yeah well, Should we open it up for some questions from our members?
7: I've got one question in the Q&A, if I could, please.
12: Sure, Rick, go ahead. Uh,
7: Viola would like to know if any specific work has been done in the area of colon home testing.
13: There there, it, I So, not my area of expertise. Um, I believe there is a test on the market. I don't know if it's a home collection device that, that then gets sent to a lab, or if it's a complete home test, but I know people are working in this area. This isn't one of the areas that we've yet um, taken on ourselves, but I think it's a very important area.
1: Thank you. And and Dr. Heemskerd certainly many of the lessons learned from, from you and your team and the the guidance that RadX shared with the Access Board would, would be analogous for uh either cold, colon home tests, uh pregnancy tests, and many other types of at home testing with the design of the tests and the, the way to make packaging and instructional materials accessible, correct?
13: Absolutely, absolutely. It's um, a a very rough estimate is about 80% of what's in the best practice guidelines is applicable broadly across the board to home medical
2: devices. Thank you. Very
12: good. Who's our next hand? Our next
7: hand is Patty.
4: Hello, Patty. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for this presentation. Uh, as you've been speaking, I've had a lot of different questions be thought of and uh, answered, and thank you for that. But as you've been speaking, I want to tell you the so-called um, barely- possibly shadowed accessible uh, collection test for the colon Poligard is not. In fact, I almost had what could have been a life-threatening disaster. I was texting with a friend of mine when the test came, and I was able to use the Seeing AI app to identify that that was what was in the box. So I got it out and began looking at it and I mistook a bottle of liquid for something that I thought was to be ingested like you do when you're prepping for a colonoscopy. So I set it aside and all this is going on. I'm texting with the sprint. and I just happened to mention to her that it seemed like an awfully big bottle for a home test. And she takes it back. Do not drink that until I come by. So I didn't. Had I not had someone to check that, because the bottle was not clearly marked for my app to read, had I not had someone to check that, I would have drank solution that belonged in the test.
13: Wow. That's that's an amazing
4: story. We must. I threw it in the trash. And I had a dispute with my insurance company. And I said, we will not be doing that, thank you. Anyway, that was my story and I thank you for having this presentation. It is something that I'm very passionate about as I'm dealing with several illnesses that really require me to have at home care, which is not available and the equipment I need is not available. So thank you very much. I'm sorry, I'm emotional.
1: Thank you. Thank 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 you you so much for sharing, Patty. And uh, Dr. Heemskirt, I'd like to get your reaction to the story that Patty shared.
13: Uh, That is is an extremely um, disturbing story. And I'm going to take that back to my friends at the FDA and alert them, um, because I think you've identified a problem that... um, is probably not yours alone. (laughs) Oh, absolutely not, no. Yeah, thank you for sharing that.
4: Thank you very much.
12: (laughs) All right, thank you, Patty. Next hand. Next hand
8: is Diane.
10: Yes, um, can you hear me? Yes, Diane. Okay, great. Um, Back when the um, accessible home COVID tests became available and we could order them. Um, I think we could order like a dozen and, or they'd send us a dozen and I got them. So I, I went, you know, I installed the app and look at the instructions and everything. Diane, and was,
12: was that the Illum test? Yes. Yes. Very good. Okay.
10: Um. Okay. So, you know, I look at the instructions and, and installed the app and I, ultimately decided it would be easier to have my sighted brother-in-law that works in a nursing home test me. Um, it sounded complicated. So uh, my question now, though, is, is are those, how long are those tests good for? Like, can, should I keep them? Have, would they have expired by now? It's probably been a year since I got them. Um,
13: so the, the tests, the tests keep um, the FDA, continually reevaluates the expiration date of tests. This is a really good question. So the expiration date on your box might not be the real expiration date. It might be as much as a year after that. Um, If you go back to that website um, where you ordered the test, there's a Mm -hmm. button there or a link on there that says, check the expiration date of your test and it will tell you for the lot number of the test you received or the type of test you received when the current um, expiration date is. So even though it's a year old, it, that expiration date may have been extended.
10: Okay. and uh, Oh, I can't even remember what the website is anymore. Um, it's,
13: it's covidtests.gov.
10: Okay. And so then I, w- I would have to get um get get the information off of the box then for for a lot number i think i think what they want is lot lot
13: number or maybe for the Alum, they know what the lot number is so maybe they just say I, i haven't gone to look at it that information is also available on the fda website they post changes in um expiration date, but it might be simpler to get it from the test.gov because it's going to be a smaller number of tests that they're, you know, that they bought okay. and that they need to report on.
10: Okay, well, I will, I will hold on to them until I find out that I shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much, um, Dr. Hanskirk.
13: You're welcome. Okay, our
10: next hand is Christine. Um, I was just curious um, when we get to more accessible tests that somebody has to pay for. I mean, I realize insurance companies are sort of paying for them now, but um, will there be a time when my accessible test will be more expensive than the one that isn't accessible so my insurance company will fight with me over it?
13: That is another excellent question. Um, So what we... One of the criteria in the in the redesign solicitations is for both accessible tests and higher performance tests. One of the criteria is that the test be low cost, and it's that's very aspirational. Um, there there may need to be trade offs depending on the type of technology, but. Um, CMS, um, who helps decide what is reimbursable, is part of the government team that is working on um, new test development, and so they're they're very tapped in and aware of the issue. I, 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 you know, can't say because we don't have the tests in hand yet, but we're certainly trying to make tests that are not only better, but lower cost. Well, I know that 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 new um, test that was going to do the two
10: flus and the COVID was showing is $99, and then the company went bankrupt.
13: I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's, that's a lot for our home test.
12: Thank you, Chris.
13: I will say we have more. COVID flu A and B tests in development, um, and uh, there again, I can't predict the price point necessarily, but they they certainly will range just in the same way that the COVID test price ranged.
12: All right, I think we have time for at least one more question, if we have one. Okay, yeah, we do, Judy.
15: Yes, hi. Um, thank you for all your work. And my question is more of a concern. In the next iteration of these tests, I am concerned, especially when we start talking about accessible home pregnancy and whether the results will be private to the person, because my experience with the Illum test was that you, if you use the app to do the reading of the, of the test result, was that you had to enter in a lot of personal information that then how is that information being used? And with the current state of everything right now, I would hate to see somebody take a home pregnancy test and then have that be used against them.
13: Yeah, I, I understand the concern. Um, I, I believe um, that a loom is actually modifying its app now to remove some of that information um, to, to make it uh, so that you don't have to enter uh, personally identifiable information to, to take the uh, test and use the app. And um, although we ourselves are not developing pregnancy tests, um, I would hope that that would be a consideration um, on the part of whatever company is is developing a more accessible test.
15: Well, that's why I brought it up. I'd like to be able to have maybe, as you mentioned, some of your friends, the FDA, just be notified that this is a huge, huge concern. And uh, as a nurse, uh, I can see that this could be a huge thing for people who potentially are pregnant and don't want to take the test to have that exposure happen. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
13: -hmm. Yep. Thank you. That's a really important point.
12: Thank you, Judy. And and thank you, uh, Dr. Heemskirt. We can't really tell you how much we really have enjoyed this partnership. Uh, It's it's a pleasure to work with Brian and Kim. And uh, we know we've got some uh, communication work to do with you all as we kind of roll out this next round of information. And we really uh, look forward to our continued partnership. And thank you, thank you, thank you for for all that you've done for our community. We really appreciate it.
13: Well, thank you, Dan. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have learned so much over the past year. And again, so grateful for the generosity of you and the entire community for helping us understand and get to this point.
12: Universal design, we're all Universal for it. Universal design, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. We appreciate you taking time on a
1: Monday for us. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Jill Heemskirt of The National Institutes on Health and the National Institute on uh, Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. Uh, Did I get it, Dan? You nailed it, Clark. You (laughs) nailed it. And thank you for helping us with this conversation, Dan. Uh, we'll We'll now go to our last connection show for the day, and then we'll come back with another Legislative Imperative Overview and then our conversation on accessible health and wellness. Lots of health and wellness here in the the leadership conference and legislative seminar, folks. It's a big topic to cover and one where ACB is helping to lead the advocacy charge.
0: All right, well, thank you so much, Clark and we are back hi lucy hi cindy this is number three today (laughs) number nine in all of these connection shows what fun and we're we're not only learning so much in the programming of this conference but also from our committee chairs this has been so cool yeah and i think that well both ladies are here that we want to speak with so uh zelda Are you ready to talk to us about the
16: DKM? I've been looking forward to this all day. (laughs) Woohoo! Yay! You ladies make it fun. Um, Yeah. And and I just want to give a a shout out to um, the whole committee, the whole DKM committee. You know, Kenneth is our fearless leader. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to be his vice chair of the committee and the rest of the committee members um are anthony accamini donna browning natalie couch betsy grinovich amanda Selm, melanie altsanoi frank ventura sheila young and then our staff liaison is kelly gask and our officer liaison is david trott and we we are a awesome team and we have a wonderful job to do and that's identifying leaders for ACB and we we encourage everyone whether um, whether they're new to leadership just have this burning desire to be out there and lead um, you know and and those people should be applying for the first timers award Um, we just need Leadership potential is what we're looking for 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 that award. And then those who've been maybe in leadership for a while, want to take it to the next level. Those are the individuals that we would like to see apply for the leadership fellows award. And uh, so there's there's a place for all kinds of leaders. Um, Ones that are new to the game and ones that have been around the block a bit. Yep, for sure. For sure. It's been fun to
0: witness when people come to convention and then start getting involved in various areas. Right. So
16: it's kind of like getting bit, bit by the bug. It is. Yes, and it it's really a is.
0: Bug to get bitten by. see <laughs> that well, a few times fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh,
16: well, both of you ladies know how how fulfilling it is to 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 you know take that step out of your comfort zone and do something um, that you've never done before, um, just on the off chance that it might be a good fit and. Um, you know, that's what we're looking for. Applications are due um, April 3rd, and we will, we have the lovely job Dan, of, of and, and I, I mean that, it is really a fun job to, to do the interviews. Um, I look forward to that every year to see what people are doing in different different areas. Um, and, and then, you know, the selection process is sometimes really difficult because we have a lot of worthy people. And um, we just always encourage those who have applied, those who are interested, um, even though they're not selected one year to apply again, uh, get a little bit more involved, take a deeper dive into that pool and, and see what they can come up with on another time. So um, for anyone who's applied before and not been chosen, we, we ask that you, um, you know, Give us another, give us another go. You never know. So. And
0: what do they do to apply?
16: And well, what are our applications do? Yeah, applications are due again on on April third, mm-hmm. and the, to apply, um, they just go to um, the ACB website. There is a link to a simple Google form. And in the past, it was difficult to know what, what we really wanted in the letter. We'd try and, and you know identify that in articles and such, but we thought it might be easier if we just kind of spell it out question by question and let, it, let them answer the questions. Um, and, and this is our first year trying an online form. Um, we're doing that um, in addition to the online form that they fill out. Um, they need a recommendation letter from their affiliate president and that's that's an easy process because most of those affiliate presidents are looking for leaders too and they they want them to be equipped with um, how they can help out on all levels whether it's a chapter um, an affiliate level or on the national level and of course we're looking we're looking for that too because leadership is, is usually a step-by-step process. And one step leads to another and another. So um, that's, that's it's as simple as that. Um, Filling out that form, um, getting your affiliate president to write you a recommendation letter, and then get it all in before April 3rd.
0: And if this is something that sounds of interest to you, just take the chance, go for it. You have nothing to lose and something to gain for sure.
16: And if you have problems, you know, the, the Google form is very accessible, but if, if you don't have, um, you know, um, if that's not in your comfort zone, um, you can contact one of, you can contact me or, or Kenneth or, or one of the people I just read, um, we've got a whole army of, of committee members and we'll be happy to, to help you out with that process. So, um, but, um, anyhow, that's. That's it's it's a simple thing, but it's it can be a, a real door opener to um, you and your future as a as a leader. Wonderful. Thank you, Zelda. You're welcome. Well, you guys have a great, great afternoon. And oh, evening. yeah,
4: you too. Yeah.
16: <laughs> All
0: <laughs> right. Sure. All right. And next we have Jean Mann from the MMS program and uh Jean. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? You need to get a little closer to your microphone or your microphone. You know what? To I you? needed to
17: put the microphone. You, you know, we, we all it do. Never, it, My never it
0: never works good as a crown. No,
17: it doesn't. No. Doesn't. <laughs> and here I th- thought I was doing so well. I came in early. And yeah. <laughs> so you know. Well, uh,
0: it's okay. Yes. So talk to us about how we can all help ACB.
17: Well, you know, it's funny when when Zelda was talking about, you know, being bit by the bug, one of my uh, we've had quite a few new people sign up so far, which is great. And one of them, um, when I asked her if she wanted to split her money with uh, an an affiliate, she told me, yes, which one she belonged to. And today she wrote and she said, well, I just joined a, a, a chapter in my in my state and I went to the mini mall and and this conference, I bit the bug. It's, you know, and, and I got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, we you know, like it. got bit by the bug. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, if you, if you, most people know what the MMS program is, but in case you don't, it's the monthly monetary support program. And it is a way for you to donate to ACB and to your local affiliate or your state affiliate or a special interest affiliate if you choose. Um, we ask that you donate a minimum of $10, more if you can. And half of that, up to half of that can go back to your affiliate if you would like. Or you can donate the whole thing to ACB. So it comes either out of your checking account or it gets charged to a credit card. Um, I actually recommend if you have a checking account and you, know, y- you can do it, that you do it that way, and then you don't have to think about when your credit card expires, and and then you have to remember to call the Minnesota office, or they call you because all of a sudden your you know your credit card didn't go through. So um, if if you can take it out of your checking account, I actually recommend that you never have to think about it again. So um, the, as I said, the half of it can go back to your affiliate if you choose, um, if you have already signed up and would like to increase your donation. We ask that you do it in $5 increments. And if you do this by March twelfth, which is next Sunday, you will be entered into a drawing for a $250 Amazon gift card. So Lucy.
5: Wow, yeah. Are you, gonna,
17: are you gonna are you gonna up your um donation so you can, so you can <laughs> I win think again? I
5: will, yeah. Uh-huh. And
0: and did you get mine?
17: I did. You okay. Yes. So if you would like to um if you would like to join or increase your donation or you just have questions, you can either call the uh, number eight eight eight. 9993190 again that's 8889993190 it's a um a, I will not be answering that number it's one where you leave a message so leave me your name and your phone number so that I can call you back and I will call you from home and then there's also an email address if you'd rather use that. And that is askacbmms at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-A-C-B-M-M-S at gmail.com. And I will get back to you um, with an email or a phone call. Leave your, your name and, and, and at least a phone number for that too. And I no will get credit card
0: information, though. No, no, I will not right. take credit card
17: information or checking account information. People have offered to give it to me, and I I, I do not take that. Yeah. What will happen is after the conference, when I send everything into Minnesota, um, somebody from there, probably Chris Sawyer, I think, will call you and get that information, and they'll give you a choice of a couple different dates each month where the, you could have the money, you know, come out of your checking account or charged your credit card. So you'll you'll and then he will make sure that what you told me is what you really want to do. And then once we get everybody's stuff in and we process everything and we get your first payment, then we'll do the drawing.
0: All right. Yes thank you so much you are welcome to support the american council the blind your affiliate and or you could just give your contribution all to acb and support all the many programs including community and adp and all of that yes that's that's how you support such an easy
17: way to do it you don't ever have to think about it again all All right right.
11: thank you all right thank you
0: all right, Lucy, <laughs> it's all yours to tell us what's coming up for the rest of this evening. I think it's just one event, right? One, yes, one event. All right, what 5 is PM, it? 5 p.m.
13: Accessible mm-hmm. Health and Wellness uh, with Tom Tobin, ACB Diabetics and Action President. And uh, yeah, um, with Connie Sims, also ACB board member. And uh, yeah, that's going until 6 p.m. tonight. Okay, and
0: then uh, we will be back tomorrow morning to kick things up, well, tomorrow afternoon, I guess yeah. it is 1230 <laughs> um, to kick things off again uh, for the first Connect show tomorrow. Uh, again, besides being in, on ACB Media 6 for English, 7 for Spanish, we are also in Clubhouse as well. So uh, whether you're in here, in zoom or listening somewhere else we are so glad you're taking part in the legislative seminar thank you lucy this has been so much fun another fun day with you yes it has all right (laughs) all right so i think we can turn it back over to you a few seconds early there clark um it's oh it's right on the money there you go
1: hey are we
0: good or what
1: (laughs) 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 Well, thank you all so much, and everyone, welcome back for our final session of the day. And and again, a big thank you to Dr. Jill Heemskirt as well as all of our previous special guests and panelists. We have one more legislative imperative that we will preview uh, before we get started on this session about... Uh, accessible health and wellness advocacy. So at this time, we'd like to provide the overview of our imperative, the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. We will now share ACB's legislative imperative, the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. And to give an overview of this legislative imperative, we have Nandakumar.
3: Thank you, Clark. Um, so this imperative was an imperative was one of our imperatives last year. So it's not only that new, but um, it's new Congress. So we will get we will push for it to be introduced again. Um, so this bi- this bill on um, the Fitness for All Act would um, require the act to the US Access Board, which is a, um, a governing body that sets guidelines for accessibility, um, to publish guidelines that would require um, the number, like, uh, that require gyms and other, other, other facilities to have a certain number of accessible gym equipment, so like cardio equipment, weight, and all that. Um, and um, it would also set standards for classes. So, if there's classes that you want to take, um, it will now have um, a instructor who is qualified or has been trained in teaching a blind or low vision um, individual. And this bill would also ensure that um, or, um, that there is at least one staff member that's present at the gym or the facility that, um, is trained and equipped. To help out a or assists a blind or low vision um, individual, use um equip, equipment or take a class. So this bill was introduced last year or not last year, last Congress in twenty twenty one by um Senator Duckworth from Illinois in the Senate, and Representative Desolniere from the from um California in the House. So, Clark, do you want to give an overview of what, what, what this will mean for um,
1: efforts? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Swatha. And yes, I, I've been with ACB just a little over four years now. And one of the issues that I have heard about and many folks in ACB have discussed is the need for more accessibility when it comes to health and wellness broadly. Uh, We certainly heard about that over the past two years throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and that has helped spur on ACB's Get Up and Get Moving campaign. Well, the the Get Up and Get Moving campaign is now a committee. We also have a mental health and wellness committee. So ACB is, is really taking the initiative here to make programmatic changes uh, to our organization to emphasize our focus on accessible health and wellness.
3: Yeah. So, what this means for members is that um, we all know that blind and low vision people are more um, kind of they are more likely um, to experience um, like comorbid, other, other conditions that, in, in, in addition to vision loss or um, blindness, um, and, you know, diabetes is one leading cause of blindness for working, working adults. Um, so because of that, we know that we have, um, we know and the CDC knows that exercise and fitness is important for, for health and for wellness. Um, especially for our, for, for our population, population 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 um so in that um we, we all know that reason important for, for health and for our, for our well-being but um we know we also know that this is not a exercise not always possible for us it's not always um Easy for us to do work for us to like. It's not we we, we can't walk outside and walk because sometimes the streets are not our sidewalks are not um safe or they're not, complete or um you can't literally navigate that with your cane and with the guide dog or, just being disabled. Um, so kind of because of that, um, we need a accessible equipment. So that we can take take charge of our own our, our health and well being, um, and be able to care for ourselves and exist um, it, independent, independently, it's it's important. So,
1: that's right, Swatha. So that's what it means for for our members. Uh, what does this mean for manufacturers and gyms and fitness providers? Well, it means that manufacturers would have to produce. Their equipment, so that it could be independently accessible to people with disabilities. Now, some manufacturers may say that, well, that's you know that's too hard, that can't be done. Uh, however, we know that that's not the case. Why does why do we know that at ACB? Because we have worked with several leading equipment manufacturers over the past few years to do exactly that, whether it's uh, Peloton or Concept Two there are companies that are making their equipment accessible out of the box. Uh, they can do this by adding a tactile user interface, by adding audio output, uh, by allowing people with disabilities to program the equipment, as well as receive feedback from the equipment. What does this mean for gyms and fitness center or facilities? It means that they will have to purchase and install accessible equipment to make it available for people with disabilities. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, no, no fitness center, no hotel will ever do that. Well, we already have a commitment from Planet Fitness, one of the largest gyms in the world, uh, with more than 2,000 locations in the United States, to do exactly that. So ACB and the Coalition for Inclusive Fitness have uh, reached an agreement with Planet Fitness that once this equipment's available, they will purchase and install it in their facilities. This legislation would ensure that all facilities, uh, gyms, fitness centers, have accessible equipment for people who are blind and low vision and people who are disabled. And finally, this means that accessibility won't just stop at the door, the ramp, the electric door, the elevator, or the zero entry shower. This means that people who are blind and low vision will be able to access not only the physical structure of a gym or fitness facility, but the class instruction and the equipment as well.
3: Yeah, so we, we know that we know you know this can be done and we just have to get Congress to pass this kind of legislation or once introduced. So what we're asking for you all to do is at legislative seminar, um after our after our, our virtual portion and it, and our conference is over, um we will have a Hill Day or several um you know me's on the Hill you you will and we ask that you Talk to your talk to your congressman about this. Talk to your senator about this. Tell them what it means for you to be able to be, to be able to walk to a gym and use the equipment or take a class. What it means for you and your health and, and your health and well-being. What it, and what it means for the the community broadly. And and kind of emphasize what or why this bill is important. is important to you and to the entire community. Um, so. Once you meet with your senator or representative the or of the hill, um, we'll also ask, ask ask that you fill out a hill visit feedback form or the feedback survey and tell us how your meeting went with your meeting went and um, tell us where they, whether 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 this Congress was, was engaged or whether um they kind of committed to, commit commit anything with, with regard to the bill after that um please email the form or send us a survey at advocacy at acd.org and we will follow up with that with that member of congress if need be
1: great thank you so much and that was the overview of the exercise and fitness for all act uh and what a, a great point to make at the end there as Uh, Our affiliates and members, as you're doing your meetings with your members of Congress, please complete the Hill feedback form. Share with Swatha and me uh, the impressions of congressional staff and members about these imperatives and whether or not they have pledged their support or are likely to support, or even if they have additional questions that we should ACB should follow up about. So for our final session here, again, the the topic of this panel is accessible health and wellness. And we've got some great panelists here who are going to provide an overview of their continuing advocacy work in this space. And then we'll have some time for audience questions at the end. Uh, before we close out for the day, and we join you all again tomorrow afternoon with our first Connection show beginning at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. So at this point, I'd like to introduce and turn it over to Tom Tobin, who is the president of ACB Diabetics in in Action, ACBDA, as well as the chair of ACB's Get Up and Get Moving Committee. Tom, how are you doing?
18: I'm doing good, Clark. Swatha, how are you doing? I'm doing good as well. I got to tell you guys, I'm so uh, thankful for being invited, ACB Diabetics in Action, being invited to this uh, legislative seminar today. So you um, <clears throat> also have with us my colleague and good friend, which you'll hear from in a minute, which is Veronica Elsey. She's the chair of the Accessible Insulin Pump Task Force. Um, So what I was going to start with, if it's okay with you and uh, Swatha Clark, is just give a a little bit of an overview of ACB Diabetics in Action so people can get a little flavor for it. I'm not going to get into too much detail since we're a little shorter on time today. But uh, so that was my plan. If that works for you guys. Absolutely. Go ahead. Sounds good. Again, thanks so much for having us today. Um, believe it or not, ACB Diabetes in Action was actually established in 2005. So <laughs> it's been around for almost 18 years. Um, and we've been meeting our mission of basically providing people with education and, and support on all things related to living with diabetes and vision loss, as well as uh, trying to provide support for parents and other caregivers. So our goal here is to try and help those living with the chronic disease on a day-to-day basis as well as support those who um, are also providing care and support to visually impaired and blind diabetics. So that's our core mission. Um, We're very proud of it and we've done a lot of really good things in the past two years. Um, I'm going to take one second just to introduce our board because I don't want to take too much time here but real quickly Uh, Our first VP is Charles Namborete, uh, who also is our resolutions guru. Second VP is Jeff Bishop, who also manages our website. Our secretary is Larry Gaspin, who is obviously on this call today and needs no introduction. Becky Dunkerson is our treasurer. Uh, Our immediate past president is Chris Gray. Um, So Chris has obviously done some great work in bringing this organization to where it is today. And we have four board members. Uh, We've got Linda Oliva McKinley, Randy Knapp, Terry Suarez, and Liz Alexa, who also happens to chair our peer mentor relations program, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, So we have, for those that don't know, we have both member and non-member perks. Uh, We try to make this organization as attractive as we can to everybody. Um, So our two non-member perks, just off the bat, are our website, that's like a no-brainer, right? So we have... um, www.acbda.org, and I encourage you and invite you to visit the website. Um, it's always a work in progress, but Jeff and Randy have been doing a great job in bringing it up to speed, um, and I encourage you to check out our podcast link. Uh, Jeff Bishop and Larry Gassman are doing a spectacular job in um, populating our podcast list, which basically has a lot of our past convention programming, and some of our community calls as well that we thought people would be interested in having in an archive place. So I invite you to do that. And without taking a shameless plug, I will also say that the uh, ACBDA Sugar Warriors t-shirt is up on the website. And I invite you to check that out. It's a pretty cool t-shirt. It's tactile. Um, It's got uh, bump rail on it. And um, so if you know, you're know you interested in that, take a look at it. It's There's a great description on the website. Um, so I encourage you to take a look at that and uh, uh, find out what our uh, 2023 Sugar Warriors t-shirt looks like. It's going to be another smash, I think, this year. Um, the other non-member uh, service we provide, which most people don't really realize, is our listserv. Um, We have a very busy listserv and over the past two years since I've been president, the the traffic has picked up and I think it's awesome. I think it's great. Uh, So I um, encourage you to uh, sign up, which is very easy to do. It's basically send an email to acb-diabetics, the plus sign. um, I just drew a blank subscribe plus subscribe thank you plus subscribe at acblist.org thank you for the help um just drew a blank there so love to have you join i will warn you that there's a fair amount of traffic but uh it's still pretty good so let me just touch on a few of our programs we don't have time to go into everything but one of the things that i'm really proud of um that we've really kind of solidified up as our community call program um we have three community calls each month um On the second Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, these are all Eastern Standard Times, is our um, living better with diabetes is the way we now reference this community call. And this is typically with a professional, a presenter. Uh, So it's a very formal um, presentation. um, And at the end, we take questions and answers, but that's, that's our one really major formal program. And as luck would have it, this past this coming Wednesday, March 8th, we have Mark Aronson from the Hadley School, or now known as Hadley, who will come and talk to us about all their offers, offerings. And um and we're looking forward to hearing from Mark. Uh, I, as many of you know, worked with Hadley for nine years. So I'll be curious to see what he has to say. So then on top of that, we also have now two um, friends helping Friends Casual Chats, which is um there's really, unlike the community call, there's no structure to this call. Anybody's open to come and, let, and talk, and it's an open chat where people can come and um, basically talk about what's on their mind regarding living with diabetes and vision loss. Um, so, we have, um, we have two of those. We actually grew it by one this past year, because a survey that we sent out to our members said, we need two casual chats and it's been very popular. So I invite you to come check it out. So it's the third Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern, five to six. Um, and then uh, the fourth Monday at 7.30 p.m. So we tried to put it in a time place where most people could try and uh, get to it that we're working. Um, but again, um, it's an open forum. Anyone could participate. Um, So, as I said, all these community calls are open to the general public, which I think is a pretty big deal, uh, given the fact that we're a relatively small affiliate. But um, we've got great camaraderie. I refer to us as the ACB Diabics in Action family. Um, And for more information about when these calls take place or to remind you of what I just said, please check out... uh, the ACB um, community call calendar. That's where all this stuff is listed. And uh, Cindy and her current crew do a great job of keeping that under control. Um, we have our annual convention. That's this is another sort of sort of sort of yes, sort of no membership perk, but um, we held we hold it in conjunction with ACB Nationalist Convention. So we're all one big happy family. Uh, and this summer's program, um, I know we're the envy of many other affiliates, but we're pretty much done. We have a killer program. We're going to have three endocrinology uh, pharmacists. We're going to talk about all the great ways to manage diabetes today. And they were here with us last year, um, and they really hit it out of the park. They were—they are probably—they were probably the number one panel of the, of the conve- of our state and con- of our convention. So, um, we're also having a Medicare 101 primer. Now, people might say, "What the heck is that?" Well. We're going to have a professional that provides uh, advice to individuals on how to navigate the Medicare system in a in a language that we all can understand, because sometimes you get into that government ease, it gets a little, gets a little thick, and so we'll be doing that. Um, we're also hoping to have a program with uh, Take Control of Your Diabetes. This is another organization that's doing some great stuff in our space. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> their website is not completely accessible, but uh, we're working with them on that. Jeff Jeff Bishop and Patricia Maddox are working with them on that. But their content is amazing. Their podcasts are unbelievable. They're so informative and so helpful. Um, So despite some of the accessibility issues, I encourage you to check out their website. Um, And then with any luck, we'll close our our programming for national uh, convention uh, with a panel of four individuals. Who'll be talking about their own personal journey with uh, diabetes and vision loss? Um, it's always usually it's always usually it's always a very powerful um, way to kind of close our convention programming. So this year, I'm pretty sure it's not going to disappoint. that We have some very powerful testimonials that people are saying. As I mentioned earlier, uh, once again, ACB Sugar Warriors are in, in very busy action check out the t-shirts, as I said, on the website. We're also very proud to say we're working with uh, Blind Girl Design and Tricia, who does a great job. And um, we we believe that you know, we get a good product from a person that's a blind vendor. We want to give them the business. So that's why we're doing that. Um, so as I will love to remind everyone, ACBDA uh, came in second place in overall fundraising. Um, so uh, I'm laying down the gauntlet. There you have it. And um, so and let me just close by a couple of member only perks just so I can then turn it over to Veronica. But we do have a quarterly newsletter, but obviously that is a member only perk. You have to be a member to get that. Um, and then I have to say, um, as president and as someone who's watched this program develop, I have to say that our our parliamentary relations program is clearly one of our flagship programs. We stood it up in October of 2021. Um, it's being capably led by Liz Alexa, uh, who just has an absolute amazing ability to match people and get things, the chemistry to work between people. Um, so it basically is based on the peer-to-peer support model, which for those of you that have ever had a taste of it is, a, is, in my opinion, one of the best models out there because you can't really argue with a peer that's been through what you're going through because you're living it, right? So that peer-to-peer advice, you know, can be really helpful in in helping someone adjust to their vision loss and living with diabetes. So that's what the program does. Um, Again, seasoned mentors, uh, people that have been around the block a few times helping those that are newly adjusting to vision loss and diabetes um, uh, as mentees. So Right now, we have 14 mentors, which I'm very proud of, and we have 21 mentees. So anyway, um, it's a great program. Again, you have to be a member to participate in it, but we'd love to have you join. If that's just the reason, that's fine. Otherwise, there's lots of other things going on inside ACB Diabetes in action. So I also wanted to mention real quickly before I turn the podium over to Veronica, is that we have two resolutions in the hopper. Uh, both on um, diabetes related things, especially related to what Swatha mentioned earlier, and that's the Medical Equipment Non-Visual Accessibility Act, which you know didn't make it through the last Congress, but we hope is going to be reintroduced in this Congress. Um, and we have a resolution supporting whatever House bill that's going to be. Uh, thanks to Charles Navarrete, he authored that. And then we also have a bill supporting <clears throat> Josh Holley's bill to lower the cost of insulin to 35 bucks a month for everybody. Not for those of us who are just on Medicare. And I think that is another great thing. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And um, I think we're, you know, we've got a lot of good stuff going on. So um, if you have any questions or want to reach us, you can send an email to uh, acbdaorg at gmail.com. So basically our initials, acbdaorg at gmail.com, and somebody will reply to you. So So with that, I thank you all for your attention. And I want to introduce my dear friend and colleague, uh, Veronica Elsie. Um, She's a remarkable woman. Uh, She chairs our Accessible Insulin Pump Task Force. And uh, Veronica, I have no intention of stealing any of your thunder. So I am simply going to turn the floor over to you. So thanks for being here. And thanks for everyone's participation. Veronica.
11: Thanks, Tom. Okay, I will talk fast. <laughs> I am chair of the In- Accessible Insulin Pump Task Force. This is a task force which was initiated by the NFB and has now become a coalition between the NFB, ACB, and CNIB. So we have brought the Canadians on board because they've really got a lot to offer and share with us. We have seven members. Six of us are blind or low vision, and five of us are very experienced insulin pump users. And as any of you who live with diabetes or know someone who lives with diabetes probably know, technology in the diabetes management arena is changing like every 20 minutes. It's getting crazy. And it's offering ease of living with diabetes, extra features, all kinds of goodies that are meant to make our lives easier. And many of us have just gone to conference after conference going, except for me, why not me? So this is what we are really finally working as a group to change. So our goals, obviously the duh part of the goal is to make insulin pumps fully accessible so that any person who is blind or low vision can use them safely and independently. There's the big word. So how are we going to do this? The first thing is awareness. We are in the process of trying to make these companies understand there are lots of people out there who are blind or low vision, and that it's tempting to think that The advances have eliminated the complication of vision loss that's often associated with diabetes. And A, that's not true. B, there are many, many other reasons that people experience vision loss. So we are trying to make them understand that we are a sizable group and we will matter to them. Our next goal is to get them to include us in the early design phase. And what we have been telling them is design with us, not for us. We want them to recruit us early in the testing process, as they do with other consumers, so that they can incorporate our feedback into the design and actually do something with it. We want them to then market their devices to us. We have been explaining to them that it's a smart business decision to include us Among all of the consumers that are going to help increase their profits. Our money's good, our need is there, and we can absolutely help them along the way. We also want them to understand it would be good to create accessible training programs and customer service so that if we have a problem with our accessible pump, we can ask questions and get help that's meaningful. So, what are we doing about reaching these goals? First thing that we are doing is meeting and corresponding with all the main pump manufacturers as well as a couple of startups that we've found along the way. We have a liaison for each company that helps us set up meetings with various departments, helps get our messages to them and anything that we need in working with that company. One of our main goals is to work to change company culture around people with disabilities. No, we are not a liability. And no, please get rid of the stuff on your website that puts us somewhere below children in terms of being able to use their pumps, saying we need adult supervision and that you can't use them if you're blind. So we're really working to change that culture. We are trying to educate them by telling our stories demonstrating what we do and showing them what major commitments many of us have made in order to make workarounds figure out where we need assistance what we can get away with what features we can actually access over the past 30 years so they know just what a major commitment we are making towards our health because we want to live just as long as everybody else We are also showing them how technology has changed and that it's much less costly to actually make their products accessible to us, that they don't have to invent the wheel. So many things have come along that it's much easier now. We are working to create that sense of urgency Hey, everybody. Some of us have been talking to you for 30 years. We want those pumps yesterday. We want the features. We want the good night's sleep. We want the easy control that our sighted peers enjoy. And no more crumbs. Blind people don't just take a bolus, which is take insulin when you eat. eat. We want all of the features. We want that fully accessible pump. We have managed to sign non-disclosure agreements with all of the companies so that we can get a look at their future products, their future plans, and really be a part of it. And finally, what can all of you do? Oh yes, you do have a role to play here. This is going to be a long process. The FDA is involved. It isn't going to happen in 20 minutes, but If you live with diabetes, and you've heard about all these goodies that everybody's getting, and what I'm saying is getting you excited, here's what you do. You start by talking to your healthcare team. You say, I want one of those. Why can't I use it? Most of your doctors may say, it's not accessible to you. You can't do it. You can ask them to set up a meeting with any of the representatives from any of the companies. You go in there and get your hands on the pump, play with it, look and see what's accessible and what isn't. Talk to any of us through the ACBDA email list. Um, you can find out what's there. So then the trainers and the representatives hear you sitting there saying, I want one. And the doctors hear you saying, I want one. And eventually that information filters up to the people at the top that we're working with and they really get the idea there's a lot of us out there there is a groundswell and then eventually you might get called upon to help in the testing and there will be a place for all consumers so let's get this process started so that one day we can be sponsoring a great big party where we all get together and play with those accessible insulin pumps go get them thanks
1: Thank you so much, Veronica, and thank you, Tom Tobin, as well. In uh, breaking news, Tom, we do have a bill number for the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. That is H.R. 1328
2: here Woo-hoo!
1: here in the 118th. Month.
2: All right.
1: And we'll be sure to, to share that Woo-hoo! with folks before their Hill meetings coming up next week. All right, thanks, Swatha. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. Uh, hot off the presses. Swatha, would you <laughs> yeah. like to lead us into the next portion of this panel?
3: Yeah. So um, we I am going to be talking with Sue Boyd, who is one of our account, uh, who's part of our outside council at ACB and really involved in um technologies, technology accessibility. Um, and Honey Sims who's one of our, our board members. Um, just to kick off, um, can both of you let's start with Sue? Um, tell me a, bit, a little bit about your background and your work at ACB. Start with Sue.
13: Hi,
19: everyone. I'm Sue Boyd. Um, as well as that, I'm, I'm a lawyer, uh, and I focus on accessibility in technology. Um, I first got to know ACB a number of years ago, maybe six or seven years ago. Um, At the time I was running the accessibility legal team at Microsoft. And around that same time, uh, Microsoft and ACB entered into a partnership that maybe started out slightly contentious, but loomed into a wonderful, um, wonderful partnership. And I got to work closely with ACB and just came to really respect it as an organization. And so fast forward to now where I have um, my own law firm, I'm just thrilled to be able to work with ACB in a new way as ACB's lawyer, um, doing some advocacy work around healthcare
20: technology.
3: Great, thanks Sue. Um, Connie, you want go
20: ahead? Sure, thank you, Swatha. Um, so I am a retired medical massage practitioner and lymphedema technician and a sports massage therapist and a certified, massage therapist is a little bit different than a practitioner. So, um, I have been working in healthcare, um, for 24, 25 years. I have been um, self-employed. I have worked for chiropractors and I actually worked for Sanford health systems, which is a global, um, enterprise health system, hospital, um, retirement centers. And I, worked and I developed and started and managed their massage program there and I also did a lot of education on diversity with dealing with the blind and the blind, deaf blind so um, I've always been involved with health care um, and then I am on the ACP board of directors um, and then I am on the get up and get moving committee and I've Part of my my role with that is I work with the advocacy part. So, um, health and wellness has always been part of my life. Um, with the sports background, I've been able to work with athletes um, professionally and just recreational athletes. So, um, I was excited to be able to help with any of this. Um, healthcare is always up my up my alley. So, there you go.
3: Great, thanks, Connie. Um, so Sue, one of our projects here at ECB, which you were very much involved with, was a dear, was reading a new provider letter. Um, so start off, what is a new provider letter? What is it? Basically, what it is. So go ahead. Sue.
20: She's deep, she's muted.
19: Oh yeah, you did. I'm sorry. I was talking to myself there for a while. Um. So a dear provider letter is, uh, is uh basically it's kind of an open letter. Uh, and it is written to doctors' offices, healthcare providers, hospitals, anyone who's providing medical services, and it outline it it outlines sort of both what. Um, Some practical tips for how to provide reasonable accommodations um, with a focus, uh, particularly on technology, we're focused on healthcare um, patient portals and telehealth apps, um, as well as just information about that it is actually their legal responsibility to do these things.
3: And what kind of sparked this, inspired this letter,
19: like what made you want to create it for us? Sure. Um, so about a year ago, ACB surveyed its members about experiences with healthcare technologies including patient portals and health, and telehealth. And so as a result of, of getting that survey information and, and digesting it and then some follow-up conversations with members, um, we realized there really was a problem. Um, especially, you know, with the push towards telehealth and the push towards, you know, many many doctors' offices now communicating with patients. So their standard is to communicate through these patient portals, and many of them were not accessible. Um, so we're tackling that problem on a lot of different fronts. Some I expect you've already talked about, you know, legislative, uh, some legal theories. I'll talk about uh, a, 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 a little bit later. But we wanted to have. Um, sort of an additional tool that could be available to members to use for self-advocacy. The National Association of the Deaf had done a similar letter um, for their community. And it just seemed like a great idea and something that would be useful uh, for ACB as well.
3: Great, so Connie, in in drafting this letter, you were very involved in in the first stages of it. So what was your initial reaction to it?
20: I loved it. I loved it when I first got to read it. Um, I was so thrilled, I, it was so well done, and I love the parts that it has right in the letter where a provider can go and get the exact information they need, you know, so it, it's so well done and so thought out that um, I, I wish, my, my first thought was, and I, I know when I responded to you and Clark was, I wish I would have had this when I worked at Sanford. Um, that was my first, one of my first thoughts because I thought it was just so well done. It was so, gonna be so beneficial.
3: Um, so, see, so you can't touch on this, but um, how can members use this kind of letter in their, um, their doctor office
19: settings? Yeah, and I, I would say anyone who's experienced accessibility issues in uh, or concerns with the technology that they're being asked to use, to access their patient care, whether that's a patient portal, a telehealth app or or, frankly, anything. Um, And uh, it's something that you can share with your doctor's office. And one of the things we did try to do in the letter is strike down some of the standard excuses that members often might get back or hear back um, when they raise this issue, right? Very common is like, well, you know, we don't control this technology. We just bought it from vendor blah, 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 right? That's like the first reaction, 98% of the time. And so we try and just kind of smack that down nicely, but firmly in the letter and just say, you know, that is that is your responsibility provider, right? It is not a patient's responsibility. You know, the provider might say, hey, we just bought it from vendor so-and-so, go talk to vendor so-and-so. No, 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 it is not the patient's responsibility to go make sure that your technology is accessible medical office, it is your responsibility to purchase accessible technology and so you need to go lean on your vendor or switch you know to a different solution. So um, and then there are a couple other sort of standard um, excuses people might hear back that we've tried to to uh, uh, raise and, and explain in the letter.
20: Connie, you want to add things here or do you want to... Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I she did, you know, Sue's done such a great job. I mean, and it does. The letter explains all of that. I mean, it, it took everything that a provider and myself being a provider and working with providers could come back and say, oh, you know, this is a reason or we can't do this. Um, and thinking about all the HR people I've talked with and I even worked with a senior VP, um, and they had no, no clue. So this letter is just, is so perfectly written and perfectly done that you could give it to anyone. If it's a HR person or a doctor's office or, um, patient relations, you know, it's, it gives everything what they can do and how they can contact the right people and not let them say, oh we can't we can't do it. It's not our responsibility. And it explains why it is a responsibility.
3: Great. So, uh, yeah, really um this is a great resource for members and for the broader community. Um so yes question both both of you if we start with Sue, um how else can folks um Advocate for their health care needs, their personal responsibility in their um, health in healthcare.
19: Yeah. yeah, so I would say you know this letter is a tool, but also if people are experiencing um, you know specific issues. Um, Please let the advocacy team at ACB know, uh, because there are a number of other angles as well. Um, legislation is obviously one of them, but you know, a big part of you know, there's legislation, and then there is enforcing the legislation that is already on the books. Um, and uh, ACB has been involved in a number of, of different fronts there. Some litigation against Quest uh, for inaccessible medical kiosks uh, that's been successful so far. Um, And then the work that I've been more involved in is under a law called the CVAA, uh, Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which is a law that applies to what are called advanced communication services. So things like email or video conferencing, like the Zoom platform that we're on or instant messaging. And many of these patient portals and telehealth apps, guess what? They have things in them that are a lot like email and video conferencing and instant messaging. So it is covered by this law called the CVAA that the FCC enforces. Um, And the FCC has uh, some dispute resolution, um, uh, has a program for dispute resolution that um, individuals can leverage, ACB can leverage. And so we've been Looking at that angle and working directly with some of the some of the providers of the technology, it is the responsibility of the medical doctor. I don't want to lose that point, Um, but we also want to go directly to the technology providers and make sure that what they're putting on the market is accessible. And so, been really excited to explore that angle under the the CBAA legal theory. Had some early success. We can talk about more maybe at a at a another panel, but um, we're really excited about
3: sort of how that's going great. so kind of going up beyond like legal theory and you know being on like you know being in boots boots in the ground and um, actually living that's what you're trying to do with some daily living um, Connie you want you want to add anything about how to do it, like compatibly?
20: Yeah, so I mean just I you know I, I agree the letters are great, but we you know part of the affiliates I mean I think each chapter each affiliate, when I come across, you know, an instant, you know, I, I will be even willing to say, you know, let's, you know, there's ACB or we have the South Dakota Association of Blind because I'm, I'm South Dakota and we would love to come and, and visit with you. We'd love to share some information and topics and educate you and work with you and not just demand, but try to educate and that's what advocacy is also about is we need to educate we you know we want things but we can't do it in a demanding way we want to do it in a positive forthcoming let's work together way and I think that's the big thing is that we you reach out you've had a good bad experience or you've had a good experience and we've had some really wonderful experiences here and um, I praise them I mean, I will come right out and tell the staff that you have done such a wonderful job. I am i am so proud of you, you know. It's, and they really appreciate knowing that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so just the feedback I think is so important.
3: Great, thank you, Connie. Um, so you can access the letter um, by our website Um, ACV.org is also under um, news and dots and dashes and it's been on social so and also um, you can't if you have advocacy um, issues with your healthcare provider or um, in assistance in advocating with um, your provider, you can contact Clark and me at advocacy at ACV.org or uh, calling us at 202-467-5081 at Duke-Clark.
1: Thanks so much Swatha for this great conversation. Uh, Additionally, we will, it's not there yet, but we will add the Dear Provider Letter to the conference materials on the DC Leadership Conference webpage. We're just trying to share it everywhere to make it easy, to find. All right, well, at this point, let's go ahead and open it up to Q&A for our our audience. And whether you have a question for Tom about ACB Diabetics in Action, Tom and Veronica about the work of the Insulin Pump Task Force, or any other health and wellness uh, advocacy-related issues. We can include Sue and Connie in the conversation as well.
20: Okay, first up we have Dan Newt. Hey,
19: um, it's actually Janine Lee. <laughs> I'm on Dan's phone. We were driving, we're on our way to Washington to go to the in-person part of leadership. So um, my question is, you know, um, when you have to have a procedure done at the hospital or you have any kind of surgery they hand you an ipad for you to read and sign and most of the time you they have it that you can't turn on voiceover with this letter could you pre give it to them and turn give it to them this letter and say hey i need an accessible ipad before you know so i can fill out all my forms
1: so Sue, would you like to begin with that question?
19: Uh, sure. Um, I, I I think I think absolutely um, that was the intent of the letter, but I'm gonna also toss it to, to Cooney, who probably has a better sense of IRL in real life, how that works. Uh, but yes, I do think it's it's something you can be you can use in, in exactly that way. But Connie, I'd love your perspective as well.
20: You know, I, I think so. I think that you would be able to. Um, I will tell you that I had a procedure last year um, when I first got to the doctor's office and I was given the iPad. They actually had it so I could have it in large print. I could have it in contrast. Um, I do not use um, like voiceover. So I did not try it that way, but it looked like you could probably do it. And I think if you would contact them ahead of time um, and let them know, I think that they would probably let you do that. But I would say that, yes, this letter would be something that would definitely fall under um, that accommodation.
1: And just to build on Sue and Connie, I mean, really what you're talking about here is uh, effective communication and a reasonable accommodation, right? If, If the iPad they hand you is not accessible to you, Um, they need to provide a reasonable accommodation for you to be able to have access to that information, whether that's by making the iPad accessible, by giving it to you an alternative format, or by having a member of staff there available, uh, basically at your disposal to go through that information. Uh, So that that is the exact intent of this dear provider letter to spell out uh, cl- plainly and clearly what the medical provider's obligations to you, the patient, are. So, thank you for that question. Next question.
20: We did get a question in the chat, um, but for now, let's go ahead to area code 217 ending in 235, or sorry, in 35. Go ahead and unmute, please.
14: Hey, Chanel, it's Ray Campbell. I'm in on my phone this afternoon. Um, one thing, one concern I have as far as the Medical Non-Visual Device Accessibility Act, I'll get the language right at some point, as well as the Exercise and Fitness for All Act, and I don't know, it probably has to be handled in the rulemaking or in the legislation. I'm not sure which. One of the concerns that I don't want to see happen is that companies be allowed and out to basically say, well, we have an app that you can use to access our piece of equipment so we don't have to make the equipment accessible. Not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody wants to use a smartphone. It needs to be accessible on the equipment itself and not reliant on an app. Um, that's something I definitely think we need to make sure uh, somewhere in this process uh, happens. Um, thanks a lot. Okay.
1: That's a so Ray Campbell uh, adding a point that as we advocate for uh, accessibility in healthcare, we need to make sure that uh, accessibility does not require the use of a, or does not only require the use of a smartphone and application, but that we have out of the box accessibility that does not require uh, an individual to have their own uh, personal smartphone. So great, great point, Ray. Does anyone have any, anyone from the panel have any points that they'd like to add?
11: Yes, this is Veronica. This is Veronica. One of the things that's happening in the diabetes Um, equipment is that companies are actually beginning to go to a model where everything is only controlled with a smart app for everyone, not just us. So particularly when you think about an insulin pump that you wear, they're trying to make that part of it smaller and smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. so that then you just use your app. And so I think what we need to look at is along with making the devices themselves, whether they use receivers or not, but more and more are not using them, we may need to look at a program of how can we help people afford and get trained on some of those smartphones, because it may be the only option and that's sighted or blind or low vision.
1: Veronica, do you a follow-up question. So, mm-hmm. As, say, for example, insulin pumps or continuous glucose monitors, as the wearable portion is getting smaller, and maybe there's not a a reader included with the device anymore, so now it's uh, the reader is the application on a personal device. Do you foresee a world where uh, those apps would then also be available on assistive technology as well?
11: I would imagine if you, any assistive technology that could connect with a smart device because obviously these apps are going to need to be you know changing continuously and connected to other apps and you know now right now as a diabetic you could have like three things connected on bluetooth at the same time mm-hmm. there are there are some things right now where they're trying to connect the continuous glucose monitors with the pumps and you have to use two or three different apps it's, it's a little bit of a crazy stage but i think That's one of the reasons that we are stressing so much that they be voiceover compatible, that they be talkback compatible, and that they really look at contrast and other issues that that face blind or low vision consumers, because it's what's going to happen in the future. Everybody's going that way.
1: Yep. Thank you. We probably have time for one more raised hand, and then we'll finish with the question from Q&A.
20: Next is Jewel. Hi, this is Jewel in Kentucky. I have a comment and a question. Um, The comment is real quick. I think out-of-the-box accessibility is going to be really important because sometimes Bluetooth screws up, your phone dies, or you leave your phone somewhere. And, you know, if you don't have your phone available and you need insulin, that's kind of important. Um, My question, though, is whether this is for other medical devices that may or may not be covered by insurance as well. For example, a TENS unit, I was told, my my doctor gave me a prescription, the insurance said, we're not covering that um, unless you have atrophy. Would that kind of thing be covered? Because I have not been able to find an accessible TENS unit for chronic pain management.
1: Sure. So the, this is a question in reference to the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so the if the TENS unit is a class two or three medical device that is certified and approved by the Food and Drug Administration, then it would be a device that would be required uh, to be made accessible, uh, regardless of whether <laughs> insurance pays for it or not. We're really focused on the device certification process by the Food and Drug Administration.
20: Yeah. Clark, this is Connie. This is I'd like to comment. I sure. I have a tens unit, and we, they are not accessible, unfortunately. Mm. Um, I have I have permanent neuropathy from my accident. So, and I've worked on the professional level with tens units when I worked with the doctors and in my professional. Worked in the hospitals, um, and not a single one is accessible. So they would, I believe, fall under this. So I think that's something that we really need to look at because that is so important um, for diabetics, also with the diabetic neuropathy.
1: Thanks, Connie. And then uh, our last question is from Karen Campbell, and it's uh, it was submitted through the questions and answer feature on Zoom webinar. And Karen asks whether the the proposed CVTA legislation, our fourth and final legislative imperative that we will provide an overview for uh, tomorrow afternoon, the Communications, Video and Technology Accessibility Act, whether that will strengthen our advocacy with health apps. Um, so Sue, I I know you're not uh, deeply involved in the CVTA, <laughs> but with your knowledge of the CVAA um, and the the requirements for advanced communication services, I'll add the note that the CVTA will finally require the FCC to uh, to define and create rules for accessible. Uh, excuse me for video conferencing services. So, do you think that that will strengthen our advocacy work with uh, healthcare apps and health providers?
19: Um, so, for sure, the the increased clarity around the um, video conferencing the definition of what's covered will be enormously help helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I one thing though I'll say though is <laughs> I. The, the existing laws under the CVAA are pretty clear that these patient portals, especially like the email features and the messaging features, should be accessible. And it's an enforcement problem. And it's a I know, Clark, you've had many conversations with the FCC on this as well, right? Um, there's it's and you've we've all heard the story before, right? I mean, the laws are there, but then that they have to be enforced. And uh, by the way, I 100% agree with you, Connie. You want to go in with a posture of collaboration and helpful. And I think that's the, the ethos of ACB, even in litigation when we can you know, mm-hmm. get to a collaborative solution. But um, so I guess a two-part answer. Yes, it will it will help, but also don't wait. Don't wait. There are
20: good laws now. <laughs> yep, I agree. I totally agree with you, Sue.
1: That's great. Well, again, thank you all for joining us here to talk about uh, your ongoing advocacy efforts related to accessible health and wellness and your collaboration with outside organizations, uh, your collaboration with ACB, and we all still have a lot of work to do.
2: (laughs) Oh,
18: yes. (laughs) Yes, we do. So we get...
1: Thank you to everyone for joining us for day one of ACB's Legislative Seminar. Uh, Again, thank you to our sponsors, Presidential Sponsored Mobile Voting Project, our Beltway Sponsors, American Printing House for the Blind. uh, Excuse me, American Printing House for the Blind, uh, Waymap, Vispero and Enhanced Voting as well as our 71 individual sponsors. Please join us tomorrow. The connection shows will begin at 1230 PM Eastern, and then we will get started at 1 PM Eastern. And uh, Swatha, do you want to close us out by our our now famous closing tagline?
3: Keep advocating. All right.